Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the antepenultimate class of the Book of Lost on the Book of Lost Tales, Part Two. We are getting into the end, and uh, tonight we get to the part of the book where things get a little strange uh, and a little difficult to follow. Um, so, uh, first, just uh, quick announcements. Uh, I don't have any big new announcements today, but just a quick reminder uh, first that our summer courses are now enrolling. So if you want to, if uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about some poetry here this evening, want to talk about uh, a bunch more poetry and look at the whole scope of Tolkien's career, you can join me for my Tolkien's poetry class uh, this summer. Um, or if you're uh, looking for something a little bit uh, a little bit more out on the edge in the fantasy world, uh, you can join uh, Dr. Sturgis for her H.P. Lovecraft class, uh, which should be really cool. Uh, and also don't forget that in a few weeks we will have the Princess Bride, uh, which is what we're going to be starting on when we finish the Book of Lost Tales. Uh, so I hope that many of you will join me for that. And, uh, you know, it'd be a great, uh, if you've got, um, if you've got, you know, friends who sort of wonder what you're doing here, uh, in, uh, attending and listening to, uh, these classes, it might be a fun one to get, uh, other people involved with, um, but, uh, yeah, Patrick, you're right, that book also has notes, but in a very different way. It'll actually be kind of fun looking at that book in the context of having just been looking at Christopher Tolkien's notes uh, on the Book of Lost Tales. Uh, Patrick, I think I agree that'll be, that'll be, uh, that'll definitely be fun. Um, uh, uh, Don is asking, are there any updates on the Anglo-Saxon class? Yes, it is, in fact, coming together. We, uh, we have, all, we have just, just about have all the materials uh, uh, set, and we're processing them and getting them ready. Uh, so we're, we're, we're almost there. I'm very excited about it. Um, okay, tonight we are talking about the big one, right? Oh, yeah, Christian says, uh, the Facebook page says we're doing Twilight for our next class. Yeah, uh, of course it does. Of course it does. It's April 1st. Um, uh, I've also been tweeting today about how Peter Jackson has already approached us to, uh, uh, to write the script for his Silmarillion uh, adaptation series. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's the kind of thing one does. Anyway, okay, tonight, tonight, we're gonna we're we're talking about the big one, right? The story of stories, the culmination of all of the Book of Lost Tales, the 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 story to which all the others are a mere preamble, right? Which which story, when full told, would be as long as like half the entire rest of the Book of Lost Tales put together, right? The only problem, obviously, is that Tolkien never wrote this story. Um, and of course, that's uh, kind of sad, you know. In many ways, well, it's hard. On the one hand, I kind of want to say, you know, how Christopher Tolkien said he said in the notes in this book, and he also said the same thing. He was kind of paraphrasing himself or quoting himself, really, um, what he said in the notes uh, in Unfinished Tales uh, when he called the, you know, the 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 abandonment of um, of the later story of Tuor that's published in Unfinished Tales. Uh, you know, one of the sort of greatest you know, uh, you know saddest uh, uh, stories in the history of incompletion. Um, you know, I'm tempted to say the Arendel story, or rather the, the non-story of Arendel, is uh, uh, one of the great sort of sadnesses, not of incompletion, but of non-beginning, right? Of non-existence. It's one of the greatest non-existent stories that is. Uh, exactly, James. It's the greatest story never told. Um, certainly in Tolkien's world, I think it qualifies as the greatest story never told. 
but but of course I'm also tempted to sort of qualify that as well because you know I I sort of I sort of wonder um, that is the story of Arendel is central to Tolkien's thinking and it's obvious that it's really important in his mind and yet. I can't... I mean, this sounds like a really dumb thing to say. I don't think it's an accident that it was never written. But what I mean by that is, it's not just like, oh, like he was going to get around to it, but he, to, tragically, he just never quite got around to it. He had lots of chances, hundreds of chances, um, and he didn't write it. He could have written it, but he didn't write it. Instead, he went back and did another version of the Turin Turambar story, or rewrote the Baron and Luthien story. And you look at the number of times he told those stories, and in what detail, especially Turin, right? It's like, seriously, he could never spare the time to write down the A. Rendell story? Um, so I would say, the conclusion that I kind of draw from that, and here I am drawing conclusions at the very beginning of class, um, but it's hard for me to avoid the conclusion that Tolkien had... A, 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 a somewhat ambivalent relationship with this story that it, you know that is on the one hand kind of in theory it was the greatest story it was the center of all things but in practice it wasn't actually near to his heart and I think that we can see that even in the you know that is not in the same way that the Turin story was, right? He kept going back to the Turin story and rewriting it and reworking it. He comes back to the ideas of the Arendel, of the A. Arendel story um but it never really has the kind of identity. It ne- it certainly never seemed uh, really to inspire him to sit down and write prose about it in the way uh, that several of the other stories um, uh, obviously did. Um, now, uh, so I want to be a little bit uh, more, you know, these just sort of general remarks here. Of course, I want to be a little bit more uh, uh, systematic in our talking about things uh, tonight. Of course, we have to mention the fact that, uh, as Christopher Tolkien emphasizes, um, the name of Eärendil is essentially where Middle-earth began. Tolkien told this story. Um, It's a relatively, it's not quite as famous as the, uh, in in A Hole in the Ground There Lived a Hobbit story that Tolkien loved to retell um, about how that line came to him and he wrote it down on on an exam paper. Um, But but the story of how just that name, Eärendil, just spoke to him from this line of Anglo-Saxon, Eala Eärendil Engla Beurkdust, Hail Eärendil, brightest of angels, um, and which, you know, as he explains, and uh, Christopher Tolkien quoted it for us, Tolkien's own interpretation of Eärendil there, as it's used in that Anglo-Saxon line, is that it's a reference to the evening star, to what we call Venus. Um, not the planet Venus. I think it's important to distinguish the two. It's not that Eärendil was associated with Venus um, as an astronomical body, so that we should be sort of thinking of kind of the mythological identity of Venus with Eärendil. I don't think... Um, that's in play at all. It's just that star, right? The uh, the the that that visual phenomenon in the sky, um, which we identify uh, with the planet Venus. That's what a that's what that's what Tolkien understood the poem to be referring to when it referred to Arendel. Um But 
you know, Tolkien describes how this word really spoke to him, and of course you get, you know, Tolkien being Tolkien, him talking about the way in which it, it, it fits or, or doesn't quite fit within the sound of the Anglo-Saxon language, and how it, you know, there's there's a kind of melody to that word, which you don't hear uh, in other words in Anglo-Saxon, and, and the way that he sort of thinks about that, and the way that it becomes a cornerstone, not just for the stories, but for many of the linguistic elements of his Elvish languages and things. Um, it's uh, you know it's it's great. So you know that's where you know it's 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 I think it seems to be from what Tolkien's own description fair to say that that line that the name of Eärendil is where all of Middle Earth began. It's where the entire Middle Earth mythology and stories and everything everything goes back to just the very word Eärendil in an Anglo-Saxon poem. Um, but okay. So, we get that, but what about the story of Eärendil? What about the character of Eärendil? When when Tolkien considers that word, that name, and incorporates it into his mythology, or let me be a little bit more careful, when he contemplates that name, and writes poetry about that person, Eärendil, a person of that name and then subsequently incorporates it into his mythology. You see the distinction there. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, what does he do with this? What does Eärendil mean to him? Again, not that in general and abstract the name and the sound of the name, but the character. What is the sto- what is Eärendil's story, really, as it is in Tolkien's mind way back here at the beginning? Um, and uh, let me start off with a little brief review if you were confused by this chapter, fear not. You are in wonderful company. Um, I, it, this is a kind of a head-spinning chapter to try to wrap your mind around all the different fragments that Christopher Tolkien brings together. Um, he Just to give a little brief summary, um, he talked about three different manuscript elements from which th- this evidence about Eärendil, you know, the early concept of Eärendil, is, uh, is being brought together uh, from from outlines that he wrote, that is plot outlines for the Book of Lost Tales, um, as well as what seem to be later revisions of those outlines. Uh, Some isolated notes, you know, that Tolkien just sort of jotted down a few sentences on subjects related to Eärendil and his story, uh, and poems, early poems that Tolkien wrote, some dating all the way back to 1914, um, when Tolkien was was an an undergrad uh, at Oxford. Here's what we're going to do tonight. Christopher Tolkien gives us these texts in succession, right? Here's the first outline, here's the, and he puts them in what he believes to be chronological order, though, you know, he's it's possible that he's wrong about that. He admits that he's kind of guessing or drawing some inferences which may or may not be correct. It's not always possible to date these things with accuracy. Um, I'm not going to question any of those things because I, I, you know, I mean, I don't have evidence on which to try to refute Christopher Tolkien on any of those things. So I'm going to be just kind of accepting Christopher Tolkien's chronological ordering um, as a given for the sake of this discussion. Um, and it's great that Christopher Tolkien gives us these texts so that we can see, here's one version of the story, here's another ver- here's a slightly later version of the story, and we can kind of see how it grows, kind of. That is, if we can kind of keep it all straight, we can see how it goes. Here's what I'm going to try to do tonight, which I hope will help a little bit. Um, 
for us to be able to kind of wrap our minds around it. I'm going to try to put together for us tonight, or rather we together are going to be putting together a conglomerate version of this of this story of, of the early Arendel. That is to try to distinguish the story as it emerges in prose, thinking about not just kind of going back and forth over the same stuff again until it all gets kind of spun around, but kind of look at it phase by phase um, and thinking of all of the things that it, so that we can try to get one semi... I mean, we're not going to unify them completely. There are, there are elements, you know, there are certainly variations which we have to recognize and things which can't just be reconciled and smooshed together. Um, I'm not saying that we are going to do something kind of editorial there and cut things out and stuff, but rather just try to understand, um, you know, sort of in parallel these stories rather than sort of sequentially the way that Christopher Tolkien puts it together in, in, in hopes that this will help us kind of keep things straight a little bit. My goal, of, and first of all, a disclaimer, I'm probably going to make mistakes. I get, this stuff is really confusing and nothing would surprise me less than to, than to find that I'm going to screw things up in one way or another here and talking about it tonight. So I hope that you'll be patient with me if I do that. And, and don't be afraid to let me know if I've made a dumb error. But my goal tonight is to try to get a sense of the story that we can really grasp. Because I, I anyway, have a really hard time coming out of this chapter with a sense of what is Arendel really about here. Um, and let me give um, uh, an example. Here's Christopher Tolkien's discussion of... Uh, uh, Sort of the similarities and differences between this and the summer is kind of his his uh, his synopsis of the story. I have already noticed the remarkable fact that there is no hint of the idea that it was Arendel who, by his intercession, brought aid out of the west. Equally, there is no suggestion that the Valar hallowed his ship and set him in the sky, nor that his light was that of the Silmaril. Nonetheless, there were already present the coming of Arendel to Kor Tyrion, and finding it deserted the dust of diamonds on his shoes, the changing of Elwing into a seabird, the passing of his ship through the door of night, and the sanction against his return to the lands east of the sea. The raid on the havens of Syrian appears in the early outlines, though that was an act of Melko's, not of the Feanorians, and Tuor's departure also, but without Idril, whom he left behind. Yeah, this is a this is a, a very useful kind of summary. I mean, it, it does a great job of bringing together the, the fundamental, you know, the many of the similarities, but the fundamental uh, uh, differences uh, between the early versions of the Arendel story and the published Silmarillion version. But notice where this leaves us, or where it doesn't leave us? That is to say, okay, so what we get here is there are many similarities, right? Many of the elements, the, and, and some of them quite fine, like the, the fact that his shoes have the dust of diamonds on them, for instance. Many of these elements, the fact that Elowing turns into a seabird, um, those elements are there in the beginning. Okay. What does that tell us about the story, though? Does that help us to understand the story? Does that mean that the stories are basically the same? Well, no, of course, because he begins by explaining that the story is a completely different story, right? So the story of Arendel originally and the story of Arendel the Silmarillion is exactly the same, except for the part that his entire mission doesn't happen, right? Um, his being set up in the sky is done in, enti in an entirely different context and for an entirely different reason, and he has nothing to do with the Silmarillion 
Arundel at all, right? As far as we can tell, Arundel never even touches the Silmaril, and what he does has nothing to do, and the, the Silmaril ends up having nothing to do with him. Um, remember when I was talking last time about the question of the identity of the Elven King and the Hobbit with uh, with Tinwellent or, th- or 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 uh, or Thingol? And one of the arguments that I was making, you know, I referred back to the, you know, Tolkien's comments about Red Riding Hood uh, in on fairy stories, that, you know, if there are certain, if there are certain differences, you know, there comes a point where when you've got differences, that, it's just not, it's not, no matter how parallel they might be, no matter how similar they might be in other respects, they're not the same, as Tolkien argues. The story in which Red Riding Hood is eaten at the end, and the story and the version of the story in which the wolf is killed in the end, are fundamentally different. They're not the same story, even though they have so many of the same elements. And just as that, as I was arguing last time, the Elven King, the you know the Elven King who lives in the woodland caves, alone, and the Elven King who lives in the woodland cave with his goddess wife and most beautiful dancing daughter. Are, are are different. I mean, I can't identify those two characters. Um, I, they're parallel. I can see lots of similarities. I can see how one likely inspired the other. Um, that one is is to use the word I so often use a sort of a recycling, a literary recycling of the other. But they're not the same. I can't say that they're the same because they're not the same stories. Because those elements, the 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 connection between uh, between Tinwellent Thingol and his wife Gwendolyn Wendling Melian um, is an is I, I mean I I think an essential element of his story. Remove that that part, and you've got a different story, a totally fundamentally different story. Um, how much more so the journey of Arendel, right? Um, uh, the, you know, um, there's no uh, there's. Uh, it is indeed a remarkable fact that there is no hint of the idea that it was Arendel who, by his intercession, brought aid out of the West. Um, indeed, it makes you wonder what on earth all the build-up was about, right? I mean, think of the stuff that we talked about in the Gondolin story, right? All that sort of messianic language about Arendel, right? That he's the desire of the Valar, and, and, and he's the, you know, the, the sort of the fruition of all of these plans, and Almo has been scheming primarily to bring Arendel into being, right? That he's this shining child with a brilliant future who's going to perform something remarkable. What exactly is he going to is he going to perform? Um, that's one of the questions. I think it's really interesting to look at. Um, I bet, especially if those of you who haven't read this book before but have read the Silmarillion. I bet you when we were talking about those passages, you guys were all assuming that A.R. Rendell was going to be the, the one who plays this pivotal role in saving the, the, the you know, the, the Noldar, the, you know, the Eldar uh, in, uh, in Middle-earth. But it turns out, nope, nope, that's not, in fact, his role. That doesn't even seem to be on the table. It's not like he toyed with that idea and, and ditched it. Um, it's not there. And that doesn't even seem to be his purpose. It's not just that he fails to achieve it, he doesn't even seem to try to achieve that exactly. So anyway, well, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit now. My point is, you know, the reason I wanted to look at this is what I want to try to do tonight, 
as we look at the story together, these all these different versions of the story together, is to try to get some answer to the questions which Christopher Tolkien is not really asking in this passage. That is, to try to, to, to get not just, okay, what are the similarities and differences, but what is this story? Can we get some kind of sense of who Arendel was in Tolkien's mind, you know, back in the, back before 1920, right? What does Arendel mean to Tolkien? What is his role in the story? What does, it, what does the story of Arendel and its significant, obvious significance and centrality, no matter what it is he ends up doing or not doing, it's clearly important and clearly central, um, not just because of the sort of, if you want to call it so, historical accident of Arendel's name being the inspiration of this stuff, um, but the but the, the 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 fact that it's so antis- anticipated and dominant. I mean, had he followed the plan that he had in mind, he was going to tell seven stories of Arendel, and uh, uh, and you know, so it was going to like half the book was going to be the tale of Arendel, right? So it's clear that this is really important. Why and what does that show us about the lo- the you know how does that help us to understand the lost tales in general? And of course, we have to draw all these conclusions from an untold story, which is a little bit challenging. But again, as much as we can, I want us to try to understand this story on its own, on its own terms. So, what we're going to do, we're going to start with the poems. Notice I said before, we're going to sort of talk about the story as it emerges in prose. Um, and that's because, and I, 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 I've said that then, because I think the poetry is clearly a different story. Um, the, uh, the, the three different elements that Christopher Tolkien sort of draws on, three, three different bodies of evidence um, for the A. Arendel stuff, I think are kind of unequal in the sense that they're not doing precisely the same thing. Um, on the one hand, you have the two categories of the prose things, right? The the story outlines and ideas that he's put, and then the, the sort of individual notes and uh, random thoughts that he's jotted down at various places in which Christopher Tolkien has so conveniently brought together for us. Um, those are all developing the story of A. Arendel, basically in the context of the Book of Lost Tales, right? So we've got the Lost Tales stuff, and uh, and we're moving forward and, and integrating A. Arendel into that. That's the time when A. when Arendel is being incorporated into the mythology. But he pre-exists the mythology, right? He comes before. Because he came out of that word, right? Out of that name, out of that Anglo-Saxon poem. The concept of A. Arendel came first, and the mythology comes second. And then A. Arendel becomes, gets worked into that mythology. So when we look at the prose, we're going to be looking at how this character of Arendel comes to establish his home, or what kind of home he ends up establishing within the mythology. But the poetry, I think, based on what we can see in these poems and the context, uh, you know, the, the dates of them that we know, um, in the poetry, I think we're seeing something different. What we're seeing there are these earliest glimpses. What are the ideas about, about Arendel that Tolkien has independent of the overall story, right? Not influenced by the shape of the Lost Tales stories as they've already developed, right? Because these poems predate that stuff. So, um, so I want to start off with the poems because they, I think, gives us the, give us this this earliest and, in that sense, independent glimpse of what that name of Arendel meant to Tolkien and how he began to kind of embody these, not in stories exactly, um, but at least in song, in verse. So, um, I want to I want to be looking at these. Um, I want to look at these 
at the poems first. And I, so we're, we're going to look at all four of these poems separately, just, just, just bits of them. We don't have time to go through all of the poems. Um, but, uh, but I want to just look at bits of them. And, and as we do, the consistent set of questions I want to be asking... I want us to be, you know, so I'm, I'm going to put some, some passages of the poems up, uh, and I want you to be thinking with me, who is A. Arendel exactly? It's, you know, as we see it in this poem, who is A. Arendel? What's he associated with? What do we learn about A. Arendel and his story? What can, we, what, what can we see? Who is this character? What is he associated with? Right? And again, try to free your mind of everything else. Forget not only the published Silmarillion, forget the Book of Lost Tales, right? Forget all that stuff. Just these poems themselves, because these poems came before all this other stuff, right? Okay, so so let's do this. First, uh, the poem which whose title is the Anglo-Saxon line uh, from which the name of Arundel was drawn. Christopher Tolkien says this is it. This is the first one. This was written in 1914, way way back. Tolkien is is what not even 22 yet. Um, no, he is 22. Um, actually, it's really convenient, the fact that Tolkien's birthday uh, is in January, so that, uh, like, in any given year, you can you can always know what age he is. So he's 22 years old. He's writing this A. Arendel, this a. Arendel poem. So here's a snippet from the A. Arendel poem. Again, remember the questions. Who is A. Arendel? What is he associated with? What do we learn about his story? Okay. Unheeding he dips past these twinkling ships by his wayward spirit world, on an endless quest through the darkling west or the margin of the world, and he fares in haste o'er the jeweled waste and the dusk from whence he came, with his heart afire with bright desire in his face in silver flame. And skipping down a little bit. Then he glimmering past to the starless vast as an eyelid lamp at sea, and beyond the ken of mortal men set his lonely errantry, tracking the sun in his galleon through the pathless firmament till his light grew old in abysses cold and his eager flame was spent. Okay. What do you notice? What do we learn? Who is this guy? Now, when we do these kinds of exercises, keep in mind, I don't want you to be drawing conclusions right away because that's a sloppy way to do things, right? Give me observations first. What is the data that we are processing from this poem. What are the bits that, and then we'll put them together, right, and come to conclusions that way. Um, but that's always that's always the best way to do things. Um, okay, he is. He's what we see. Uh, 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 Caritas pointing out words. I think that the, those are important words. Unheeding, and wayward. Uh, being in, right there in the first two lines, well, the first two lines that I've quoted, right, it's line 17 and 18 of the poem, but but yes, unheeding he dips past these twinkling ships by his wayward spirit world, right? Unheeding and wayward. I agree. Those, those I think, are, are important adjectives. Wayward, I think, is particular. Unheeding could mean simply very courageous, right? That is somebody who is so bold that he pays no heed to danger, right? Um, sort of reckless in a daring and good way. But wayward is a little bit different, right? Or rather, puts a kind of a different spin on unheeding. Wayward makes him sound a little more, you know, happy-go-lucky, right? Hey, what the heck? He's just, he's just traveling around, right? Um, yeah, Ethan, he's an explorer. I can agree with explorer, but... Explorers so often have 
a point, right? They often have a goal. Of course, they often don't achieve their goal. You know, it's like, uh, you know, of course, there are plenty of examples of this in the history of European exploration, uh, trying to find something and finding something else quite different. Um, but we don't, we don't, that, in fact, I think is one of the things that is, in my mind, most strikingly absent. What's his purpose? What's his point? Well, I don't know. Does it suggest he has any point? I don't think it does suggest he has uh, he, he has any point. Let me let me uh, uh, one word which is an important word here, um, which I want to explain because it, it, it's easy to be confused about. Errantry, his lonely errantry beyond the ken of mortal men set his lonely errantry. There in line forty four, um, errantry, um, uh, it it doesn't have anything to do with an errand in the sense of like being on a mission or trying to accomplish a task. Um, errantry means you're going around doing... Th- it means like you're searching for adventures, right? A knight errant, traditionally, uh, is one who just go- who just goes out and says, I, I shall take uh, the adventure that I find there, right? Uh, if you're a knight errant, you just go wandering around and wait for something to pop up, right? And of course, if you're reading a, a traditional Arthurian story, things generally do very obligingly pop up. Um, no, not always, actually. Uh, I think of the, the, the really sort of funny moments uh, in some of the Holy Grail stories, where a bunch of the knights, that is, the knights who are not destined to find the grail, they've not been chosen, they've been rejected. One of the ways you can tell that they've been rejected is they just find nothing. And, that, you know, it's one of the few times in Arthurian literature that knights come back and they're like, boy, it's really lame. I mean, like, we just wandered around, like, waiting for adventure, expecting it to pop up any second, and nothing. We just totally came up empty. It was the most boring year we've ever passed. We just kind of rode around and nothing happened, right? Anyway, but that's what it means um, to be uh, to be on errantry, and his errantry is lonely errantry, right? So he's wandering off on his own, just seeking adventures through the pathless firmament. Um, he is tracking the sun in his galleon. Does that mean, uh, you know, Don is, is sort of speculating that perhaps it means that he's, he's, he's hunting the sun in some sense. It's possible that that's what he, that that's what it means. It may also simply just mean that his his track follows the sun, as of course if he's the evening star, I mean that's where the evening star is, right? It's right behind the sun, so that he's he is he is in the track of the sun. Does it mean he's actually pursuing the sun with an intent to catch it uh, and maybe kill it? I don't I don't I don't know. It's 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 conceivable. It's conceivable, but um, but I don't necessarily see that. Um, more, more. Okay, so uh, uh, haste is another important word. Stephanie uh, is pointing to. Um, yeah, he fares in haste. That that does seem an important phrase as well, right? He's not. He doesn't seem to have any exact purpose, but he does have. Uh, there does seem to be some urgency. Um, I guess. Again, his, his, his journey is called a quest in line 19, which would imply that he has a purpose, but again, it's an endless quest, um, which suggests that perhaps maybe his purpose isn't quite as definite as that. Um, if it's, a, again, if it's a, a general sort of quest for adventure, which just never really ends. Um, uh, but he, he does, So he fares in haste, but that seems to be associated not with a kind of an urgency, like, I must accomplish the thing, right? Um, so much as 
associated with what we see a couple lines down, his heart afire with bright desire and his face in silver flame, right? His heart is afire. We see his enthusiasm, right? We see his passion. Um, so his haste seems to be associated with that, right? He's not somebody who's like, well, I don't care. I'm wandering around because whatever, right? He is driven by desire. Um, and so he fares in haste. That doesn't necessarily mean he has a particular destination in mind or a particular end to accomplish. As again, I see no clear evidence of that. Um, his face in silver flame. The radiance of Arendel, um seems to be just simply associated with his bright desire, right? Uh, it's, 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 it's an image of his own of his own passion, of his own... Um, of it, it's his desire that's called bright. And so we have his face aflame, though again, we're not given a very plain explanation for that. We're not given any kind of a physiological explanation for that, right? Like diamond dust, for instance, right? We're not given anything like that. Um, and Alyssa, I agree, I think it's a very important point. Um, he, uh, Alyssa says, he, or at least his light and eagerness, ages and wanes. Yes, that's where the poem ends, right? That, that second bit is, of course, the end of the poem. Um, Till his light grew old in abysses cold and his eager flame was spent. So we do have... He, he does seem to be mortal, right? He grows old. Um, and eventually his passion dies. There's still a kind of... It doesn't sound like really tragic, necessarily. I mean, if anything, it seems to me... I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me heroic, in a sense, right? That is, you know, he though though his errantry was lonely, um, and you know, and 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 took place in the pathless firmament. Nevertheless, you know, he followed his passion. He his heart was afire with bright desire until until his 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 flame was spent. Right? Um, he was, um, uh, you know, he he lived it out. Right. Eventually, eventually it came to the end, but uh, but nevertheless, you know, all the way through, he uh, he was he was doing it right, right. And then you know until you know he he in the, eventually faded as of course all things eventually pass, but uh, um, but you know he followed his desire as long as he possibly could. And what else can you do other than that? Um, yeah, good. Ethan uh, <clears throat> points out that his lack of a goal or intent or purpose seems highlighted by that last line that says he wandered till his eager flame was spent. Yeah, you're right, Ethan. Certainly, if he does have a destination of which we're not told, uh, he doesn't seem to reach it, right? Um, we don't get that sense of completion or you know, sort of satisfied purpose at the end of the poem. Okay, so so who is Arundel? Here, right again, if we see these things that are being associated with him, he is a wanderer, right? We have him as a wanderer, him on errantry, him as burning with desire, and yet not him having. You know, there's you know, you think of again the phrases that are put on Arundel later, right? A high destiny, right? He has no high destiny. I mean, I guess it's kind of literally high in altitude, um, but. Um, uh, but again, there's, there doesn't seem it's not associated with purpose, you know, sort of destiny in that sense. Um, okay, all right. Let's, I, as you probably know, could talk about poetry for a long time, um, but I want to move on to other poems. Um, again, same questions. This is from the bidding of the minstrel. First eight lines of the poem. 
Sing us yet more of Arendel the Wandering, chant us a lay of his white oared ship, more marvellous cunning than mortal man's pondering, foamily musical out on the deep. Sing us a tale of immortal sea yearning, the Eldar once made ere the change of the light, weaving a wine-like spell and a burning, wonder of spray and the odours of night. Um, the rhythm of this poem is very remarkable. Um, this poem is in dactylic, uh, dactylic tetrameter, um, four dactylic feet. You'll notice the, 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 the pattern. It's a triplet pattern. Sing us yet more of a rendel, the wandering, bum, 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 one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. Um, that's the rhythm, right? With the stress at the beginning, so that it, uh, which is a, which is a harder. Um, this is this, this is a difficult meter to write in. Um, very 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 few people write successfully in this meter. Um, Tolkien was was very uh, was into wild experimentation uh, with his meters uh, and his verse forms. Um, but um, uh, but notice how this leads him to use a lot of um, a lot of ing words, right? Um, a lot of I, uh, a lot of present progressive verbs and a lot of present participles, um, because uh, any two-syllable verb with an ing ending very often falls into a dactylic um, pattern. Pondering, you know, stress on the first syllable and then two uh, two syllables after that. That's also where we get. Um, uh, unusual words, like you wouldn't think of words like foamily musical, right? Foamily musical. You see how they fit, again, within that metrical pattern. Um, foamily is a really interesting word. Uh, foamily is like my adverb of the day. Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, I, this, I, I, as I have said every time, and we'll carry on saying every time I teach uh, poetry until I die. You have to read it aloud to get the sound of it in your ear. This first sounds really awkward until you kind of get it, until it kind of clicks. And then when it does click, it really draws your attention uh, to things. When you begin to see how the flow of the meter works, and you get to sort of you feel that going in your head, and then you can see the way in which he uh, he utilizes that in order to create emphasis that wouldn't otherwise be there. Um, I'll give you an example of that in a second. Um, and other places where he deviates from that in a way to really draw attention, as, as in line 7 there, um, starting at 6. The Eldar once made are the change of the light, weaving a wine-like spell and a burning, wonder of spray and the odors of night. He skipped a beat. Notice that? that line 7 has one beat too few. Um, Weaving, weaving a wine-like spell, and weaving a wine-like spell, pause, and a burning. Um, it, it, it doesn't fit, right? He deviates. He he, and you can hear it, right? I mean, couldn't couldn't you hear it when I read it through the first time? How that line kind of stands out, right? Notice how that draws our attention to that phrase: a wine-like spell and a burning. Um, and it really emphasized because it, without that emphasis. The wonder, the weaving a wine-like spell could lead you to think that it was just kind of like this sort of hypnotic enchantment, kind of a, 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 a to, to allude back to classical mythology, a kind of a lotus eater's effect, right? Um, but he emphasizes, no, 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 it's not, it's not like that. It's not, 
um, a wine-like spell, wine-like in the sense of, 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 of bringing you into insensibility, right? No, it's a burning that is inspired. Um, and, and so I, I think that he, he really draws our attention to that part of the line by deviating from the, uh, from the meter in that way. So anyway, these are reasons why you need to get the meter in your head, and you can really do that best by reading it aloud. Um, now, uh, 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 more. What do we notice? Things that we see here. Um, Arthur, I agree. More emphasis on the wondrous ship. Yeah, lots of description of the ship and the sea and how, how marvelous uh, the ship was, how incomparable to anything that we see now in the world um, the ship and its world is. Um, good, but notice again, you know, that word wandering, right? Good. Uh, you know, a couple of you were, were, were pointing that out, the significance on, of that in the very first line. Sing us yet more of Arendel the Wandering. That's, a, that's an identity now, right? It's not just that he was a wanderer and wayward, uh, in the in the in the in the previous uh, poem, now you know, he's identified as Arendel the Wandering, right? That's the guy we want to sing of, or the the guy I'm gonna sing of, right? Um, Arendel the Wandering. Though notice, it's not. This is a song, which is a song which is a request for more song. Right, sing us yet more of Arendel the Wandering. He's not saying, "I shall now sing you of Arendel the Wandering." Right? It kind of seems like that's what he's doing. Is that's kind of what the song does? Is tell us about Arendel a little bit? Not much plot, but much description. Um, trying to capture the the marvelousness and the wonder. Um, uh, but again, it's not saying, "I'm I shall now sing you Arendel the Wandering." Instead, it's a request for a song. Sing us yet more of Arendel the Wandering. Um, and of course, the final note of this poem is on the emphasis of how we've lost the songs, right? No more can we recall uh, the songs as they once were sung, the glory that once was seen. Um, anyway, okay. Um, more, more. What other stuff do you notice? Um, Good. James uh, is pointing out how uh, we, we see Arendel has grown old uh, in in the in the second stanza of this poem too. Yeah, good, James. We see that element as well. So one thing now again, which is beginning to grow towards a trend, right? Is this idea of Arendel as this interminable mariner, right? This one who is just traveling and wandering without end until eventually he ages and presumably. You know his flame grows cold in the end. Um, uh, his uh, wandering is a continuous state, but he's not immortal, right? We see him aging. I, I, I agree. I think it's an important point. Um, Kate asks. Uh, Kate Neville asks, "Is this the first mention of sea yearning?" Well, I don't know for sure. I mean, this is a very early poem, um, but of course, since it's a very early poem, um, the fact. I mean, I. I can't off the top of my head remember another usage of that phrase, which is certifiably earlier than that. Um, but it seems to me not to say, like, this is the point at which sea yearning emerged in his thought, but rather, from the beginning we see sea yearning as a as a really central idea. Um, but, Kate, certainly we get that here where we weren't really getting that uh, in the first poem. Right? That sense of um, 
this is a tale of immortal sea yearning. Um, and I think it's really important. Um, this is the line that I was alluding to before, where again, I think the meter gives us an interesting contextual cue for interpreting line five. Um, listen to it again. Listen to where the meter places the emphasis in line five. And back up again, as I, as I did before. More marvelous cunning than mortal man's pondering, foamily musical out on the deep. Sing us a tale of immortal sea yearning. See where the stress is? If you just put the phrase, sea yearning, right, you generally, I mean, unless I'm peculiar, uh, you would generally put the stress on the word sea, right? What kind of yearning? Sea yearning, right? But that's not where the line puts the emphasis. Sing us a tale of immortal sea yearning. The meter, the rhythm, which even by line five, we should have... You know, it's 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 very clearly established. It's a very regular meter. Um, you know, sometimes a meter serves as a more general framework from which the poet varies. You know, it's not it's 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 not following the metrical pattern really cleanly. Um, Tolkien is following it relatively clean and not 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 mechanically. There are variations still, um, but uh, but still that meter that 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 rhythm is very prominent in those first four lines. And then we get to line five, and the emphasis is on yearning, right? Tell us a tale of immortal sea yearning. That's where the emphasis is. And sometimes th- th- that's one thing that a good poet <clears throat> does. Shakespeare does this kind of thing a lot too. Um, uh, Kate, I was thinking of uh, I was thinking of you with that with that also. Um, it reminds me of one of my uh, uh, one of my grad professors who used to <clears throat> uh, object to the fact um, that almost all actors screwed up Macbeth uh, <clears throat> because uh, in, in particular the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow line, right? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Um, you know, he's, you know, he always used to make fun of actors who would be like tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow right and he's you know and but his emphasis was on the verse right shakespeare is using the verse and where does the stress lie in the lines tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and that shakespeare is using the meter to place the emphasis on the conjunctions which of course you wouldn't normally do but that it's the conjunctions not the words the tomorrows themselves are meaningless to Macbeth, right? What matters to Macbeth is the conjunction, the ands, and, and, and. You know, that's what conveys, like, what he's saying about the tomorrow, right? Shakespeare does that. It's really cool. Um, uh, uh, Tolkien does that here, too. Sing us a tale of immortal sea yearning. Um, we want to place the emphasis on the sea. So it, it, the, the, the meter, the rhythm, so clearly established, prompts us to put this, the emphasis on a different syllable than we normally would. And where does it draw our attention to? Yearning, right? Yeah, the sea is important, but it, this line's about the yearning, right? That's what we're going to sing a tale about, is the yearning. The yearning, which comes from the sea. Um, so we have him associated with desire. Now, again, this is a little different from the sort of intrepid way, you know, uh, uh, you know the... the, the the uh, you know thinking of those words we talked about before the unheeding that's the word I was trying to remember um, the intrepid unheeding uh, wanderer of the previous poem um, this association with yearning on the one hand seems to give it more of a focus right more of a purpose 
But it's not like there's a destination, right? Sea yearning means I want to go to sea. Well, what are you going to do at sea? Sail around, right? It's still perhaps lonely errantry uh, when you get there. But notice also, exactly, Arthur, very good. Uh, Arthur asks, you know, is the sea yearning made by the Eldar? It suggests that, doesn't it? Sing us a tale of immortal sea yearning the Eldar once made, ere the change of the light. It does say the Eldar made it, the yearning, the sea yearning. So it associates the kind of sea yearning that apparently Eärendil the Wandering had with the enchantment of the Eldar. Okay, so there's this, there's this elvish, there's this fairy atmosphere of it associated with the sea. Um, like it's a spell that is placed upon us, an enchantment that we find ourselves placed under by the elves weaving a wine-like spell and a burning, right? Um, the wonder of spray and the odors of night. We begin to get these marvelous, uh, sensuous descriptions, you know, multi-sensuous descriptions um, of sort of the experience of being transported, of being, you know, what being under that enchantment is like, but nevertheless, it still is an enchantment. Um, uh, uh, Jeannie asks, uh, what do I think the change of the light refers to? Excellent question. Um, I don't have any idea what the change of the light refers to. Now, most of you are probably thinking, well, now, hang on a second. Yes, we know what the change of the light refers to. Undoubtedly, that refers to, like, the darkening of Valinor and the, tra- the, cha- the transition from the light of the trees to the light of the sun and moon. Really? How do you know that? It's 1914, my friend, right? How do you know that? You've never read that. That's never been published before. Most of it's never even been written before, right? We've got to put ourselves back into the frame of this poem, Right? I don't know what the change of the light is, but it's a it's an it's a really interesting concept, right? It seems to refer it suggests that this is that the kind of immortal sea yearning that this poem is about is not only connected with elvish enchantment, with fairy magic, but with a kind of fairy magic from an ancient time when everything was different. A a time so ancient, so removed from us, that in some sense that we have no idea of, the light itself was different back then. It's a very kind of diffuse but mythic idea. Right? Remember, we've got to to project ourselves back. Right? We don't know about this stuff. Um, uh, Good. Timothy Fisher says he writes in a few lines about the gloaming, uh, a favorite Tolkien word. Um, so perhaps the change of light refers to twilight? It's possible. Certainly, again, Arendel's been associated with dusk, you know, from the beginning. So the change of light from sunlight to moonlight and starlight is certainly something which could be involved. The context of line six doesn't suggest that, right? That, um, you know, once made ere the change, the once there suggests, you know, once upon a time. Right, like a, a while back, not just like during the day before the sun went down. Right, um, but Timothy, I agree with you. That's the kind of model that we have. Right, um, for that's the kind of association that we bring to the poem about what the change of the light means—that transition from day to night or from night to day. Um, but the way that it's placed within that line, with the once made um, placed in a historical context, it invites us to imagine a change, of some kind of fundamental change in the way light works, which is, Timothy, parallel to that, 
right? Parallel to the transition from day to night or from night to day. Not sure which one that would be, right? Um, probably from day to night, since we were talking about the odors of night. Or wait, no, that refers to back then. So from night to day, I guess. You know, but anyway, we don't really know for sure. Um, but it's um, it's still uh, it's still pretty cool. Um, Ethan says uh, he read lines five and six, saying the Eldar made the tale. Um, did they make the tale or the yearning or both? Wonderful, Ethan. That's to me unclear, right? The immediate antecedent is the sea yearning, right? Sing us a tale of immortal sea yearning the Eldar once made. You can easily read that as saying, sing us a tale the Eldar once made. You know, that one about immortal sea yearning, right? Quite likely. Uh, in, in many ways, that seems an even more uh, an even more sensible interpretation of that. But I think the the ambiguity of that is actually kind of important here, right? Both Because both the tale itself is an elvish tale. It is an elvish tale of enchantment, an ancient elvish tale. Um, and then the description is this, the, you know, uh, of the tale and what it was like is is one which seems to be describing enchantment, right? But the sea yearning itself is also like a kind of enchantment. Um, so the two of them seem to be even associated themselves, right? Um, okay, so so can we see not the same picture here. Um, one, one thing, of course, if the sea yearning is made by the Eldar, this image, this idea, this concept of sort of elvish enchantment that seems to be brought up here seems to open the possibility, at least, that Eärendil is in some sense a victim. That's a strong word, but you see what I mean? That he is a mortal who was... who, ex- who became enchanted, right? Um, and lived out his days as, as a wanderer on the sea because he was filled with an immortal sea yearning. He was immortal, but his yearning was not mortal, right? So, uh, both in the sense that it comes from the immortals and in the sense that it itself never dies, and when his life comes to an end, yet his desire, his yearning, does not. Um, uh, so, uh, that's that seems to be sort of on the table as kind of understanding the context of who Eärendil was. Um, but, of course, the primary emphasis in the poem is on the glory and wonder of these ancient marvels, right, which have now been forgotten and which we now can't even sing about very accurately. Um, I better move along. Okay. As always, when I get into talking about poetry, I can get so bogged down in, in uh, spending a whole two hours on these four little snippets of the poems. Okay, The Shores of Fairy. East of the moon, west of the sun, there stands a lonely hill. Its feet are in the pale green sea, its towers are white and still, beyond Teniquitil, in Valinor. Comes never there but one lone star that fled before the moon, and there the two trees naked are, that bore night's silver bloom, that bore the globed fruit of noon, in Valinor. Huh. What's this Valinor place? Uh, beyond Teniquitil? Where's that? Have you ever heard of Teniquitil? I haven't ever heard of Teniquitil before. That's a strange name. Um, they're the two trees. Naked are. Wow. What two trees? I, I, I guess one bore the silver bloom of night and the other the globed fruit of noon? So they're associated with 
globed fruit, I'm thinking sun, so sun and moon. But why are they naked now? Um, of course, you see my point, right? Um, remember, we don't know the context. And that is fascinating by itself, right? We see these images, we see these ideas popping up in Tolkien's really, really early poetry, long before he's articulated any of these stories themselves, right? Um, note that the idea of the, of the mountain of Manway, of Teniquitil, is there nearly from the beginning, right? Um, that itself is a, is, a, is a really interesting fact, a really interesting uh, image. Um, uh, okay, um, Arendel. This is our first twelve lines of the poem. Um, where's Arendel in these lines? Where is he, and what do we learn about him? One lone star. Yep. Mm-hmm, there he is. Comes never there but one lone star that fled before the moon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do we learn? How is this difference? No, Arthur, it has nothing to do with Texas. <laughs> um, what, what do we learn about it? Good, James, he's lonely again. Absolutely. He was on lonely errand tree before, and now he's one lone star. Now, lone is different from lonely, right? Um, that is, it's not describing sort of the quality of his experience, but rather the singleness of his position, right? One lone star. Um, now, of course, things that are lone may indeed be lonely, but we have to be a little careful about that. Um, uh, yeah, good. Sarah and Jeannie are both supporting. He's fleeing right? He's fleeing before the moon. Sarah's like, he seems to be afraid of the moon. Why? We don't know. Um, uh, and good, Ethan is pointing out that here he's the one being chased rather than the one doing the chase. He was tracking the sun before. Now he's running away from the moon. Um, so we see him in this, uh, presumably, in this uh, uh, well, how would you say, um, tenuous position, right? He's He's there's threat. We haven't seen threat. We've seen wandering. We've seen errantry. But we haven't seen danger exactly before. Um, I don't know what the moon will do if it catches him, but, uh, you know. Um, yeah. Oh, very good, Yana. Yana points out that, of course, we do get the word lonely earlier in these lines, but it's describing the hill, right? There stands a lonely hill. Um, uh Good. So that concept of loneliness again, it's suggesting that you know that hill is all by itself. There are no other hills around it, right? Um, when you call a hill lonely, that's a purely dispassionate description, right? Except maybe not. Um, uh, so uh, so yeah, good. We have so we have some justification for thinking that perhaps the lone star is lonely. Um, uh, good. Good. More. More. What else do we get? From, from this is he on Erintree? Uh, well, um, that's not emphasized. Notice this is our first poem in which he's not wandering anymore, 
right? We don't, we don't, we, we don't get the wand- wandering. Is not a, wandering. We got very early on in both poems. We don't get wandering here, right? He's not Arendel the wandering. We didn't get his name here, but um, good, Sarah. He comes there more than once, or regularly. Good comes never there, but one lone star that fled before the moon. Um, it's not came there never but one lone star that fled before the moon. That might make it sound like this one time, while the star was running away from the moon for some reason, it came there, right? It's not that comes there never. He does seem to come there regularly, right? And he's the only star that comes to this lonely hill beyond Teniquitil in Valinor. Um, we don't know why he goes there, we don't know what's special about that hill. We don't know why the moon is chasing him, right? Um, but uh, um, good, Kate. He's in relationship to the trees, the sun and moon, and Valinor, right? Um, yeah. There's a sense. This might this might be not the right word to use, but I can't think of how else to say it. Um, there's a sense of privilege here, right? That he's the only one who comes to that place. That one lone star comes to the lonely hill, um, so it seems to be lonely not only in the hill sense, right in the in the in the geographic sense, but lonely in the sense that nobody goes there. Well, nobody but one lone star, right? Um, uh, and we know that this is we don't know anything about Teniquito or Valinor, but it seems pretty momentous from that description of the two trees. Right, um, if we're talking about the tree that bore the globed fruit of noon, it's a pretty darn mythic tree right there. Right, if the sun is a fruit of this, if the sun is the fruit of one of these trees, that's a big deal, right? So the fact that this guy can go there seems a big deal, right? How? Why? We don't know. I mean, there's a kind of mystery and wonder. I think there's a great mystery here. This poem invokes a lot of concepts which don't mean, even these names, which don't mean anything to us, but are evocative. evocative. The repetition of in Valinor uh, and the way that he uses that to close a stanza. Um, Notice the shape of the stanzas. Notice the rhyme scheme. Um... West of the so the sun hill sea still Teniquitil, Valinor star moon r bloom noon Valinor, right? So we get that that the a lines um, don't rhyme right L- lines one and three of the stanza sun and sea star and uh, star and r do rhyme sun and sea don't rhyme, um, but then the b rhymes repeat right you've got them repeat. It repeats in a couplet, right? Still, Teniquitil, Bloom, Noon. And then it all ends in this one solitary phrase floating by itself in Valinor, right? Um, the way in which that phrase disrupts the line, I mean, metrically, of course, it's quite different from the rest of the lines. The rhythm is very different. Um, it's, it's, it's just this repeated phrase, right? Which serves as the culmination there. It's clear that that name is really important in Valinor, in Valinor, though we don't know where it is. Um, yeah, good. Nancy uh, Fosberg points out that the fruit of noon is exactly what they called the sun in Book of Lost Tales, Volume One. Yeah, exactly. 
Remember how, you know, Tolkien's retentiveness, right? He kept that, that phrase, right? The globed fruit of noon? Absolutely. So when he comes to describe the sun in the, in, in the Book of Lost Tales, it's the fruit of noon, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, good. Good. Um, yeah. Very good. Okay, so, so we can see a different, you know, some similar things, but a different kind of sense emerging here. Happy Mariners. Oh, happy Mariners, upon a journey long to those great portals on the western shores, where far away constellate fountains leap and dashed against night's dragon-headed doors, in foam of stars fall sprinkling in the deep. While I alone look out beyond behind the moon from in my white and windy tower, ye bide no moment and await no hour, but chanting snatches of a mystic tune go through the shadowy and the dangerous seas, past sunless lands to fairy leas, where stars upon the jacinth wall of space do tangle, burst, and interlace. Ye follow Arendel through the west, the shining mariner to islands blest, while only from beyond that sombre rim a wind returns to stir these crystal panes and murmur magically of golden rains that fall forever in those spaces dim. What do we see here? What do you notice? The point of view here, right? From a dude in the white and windy tower... Okay. Let's focus in first, because we're focusing on Arundel here, down on line 33, when we get the reference to his actual name, right? Ye follow Arundel through the west, the shining mariner to islands blessed. Okay. What context do we get here? Yeah, Karita Knight apparently has dragon-headed doors. Mm-hmm. Does sound dangerous, doesn't it? I mean, that's a little uh, scary. Knight's dragon-headed doors. That sounds bad. In foam of stars fall sparkling in the deep. Good. Ethan points out that Arendel is a forerunner, right? Other people follow him into the West. Good. Good. Um, good. More. More. What else do you notice? What do we get here about him? Good. Yana says already he's referred to as a shining mariner. Yeah. No, we're not really given a reason why. Um, notice here we have, we've seen him as the Mariner of the Skies, right? That was in the very first poem. Um, uh, but then he was associated with the sea longing, right? In the second poem. Um, in the third, he was a star, and he was the lone star again. Um now we have the star stuff, right? The, the star stuff and the sea longing stuff coming together. And there's that sense of, of that meeting place, of that margin, right? Out there on the, 
the doors, the dragon-headed doors of night. Um, you know, you've got this guy up in his tower looking out behind the moon. You know, this place, the western shores, the portals on those on the western shores, where far away constellate fountains leap. Um, constellate, wonderful word, right? So like fountains, fountains of stars leaping far away beyond the great portals on the western shores, that boundary of the heavens and the sea. He's a shining mariner crossing that somber rim, crossing over that boundary. We get the sense of him as one who has transgressed that boundary, gone before us, right, Ethan? Um, and, um, and yeah, Stephanie Good, the seas are dangerous, right? Yes, I agree. I agree. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Giannis says he wants to try to use the the, the word constoid. Yeah, good luck. Good luck using that in conversation. Maybe. Maybe. Um, uh, uh, yeah, Arthur, uh, who's, so who's talking here? Um, ah, it's the Sleeper in the Tower of Pearl, I think. I love the Sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. That is, it's one of my... It's one of my favorite Tolkien phrases. You know, Tolkien is so good at those mythic phrases, right? You don't really know what it means, but it sounds awesome, right? The sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. Like, to uh, ring the gong to wake the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. Um, one of those things, and again, as I think I've quoted before, makes me think of that, uh, uh, that line from Through the Looking Glass. Uh, as uh, Alice says of the Jabberwocky poem, it seems to fill my head with ideas, but I'm not quite sure what they are. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. I love that image. Um, uh, who is the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl? Uh, 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 I don't know. Um, uh, no idea. Um, and that's one of the things that's cool about it. Um, I like the fact, you know, remember there's that one reference uh, uh, to the fact that he briefly toyed with the idea of making Idril sleeper in the Tower of Pearl, and then he ditched that idea. I'm really glad he ditched that idea. I think it's way better. Way cooler to have it just unconnected with the story in that way. Um, yes, Brianna, very much like the sound of the well at the end of the world. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the well at the end of the world is such a marvelous phrase, isn't it? Uh, really cool. Um, it reminds me very much of that, too. Okay. So, um, conclusions? Who's A. Rendell in these early poems, right? What <clears throat> what do we get? Well, we get this, the, the wandering, the star and the sea longing, the crosser of boundaries, the privileged access in some sense. He goes places where other mortals don't. He's associated with mortality from the beginning, where, right, with aging, even even when he's definitively a star, he's still, he's still aging, right? Um, so he's, he seems to be connected with mortality, uh, with enchantment. His, the stories about him are themselves like an enchantment, and also he is an ex- seems to be uh, you know, a sort of archetype for those who are under an enchantment, especially the enchantment of the sea, but happy are those who follow him, right? So, okay, so we get a bunch of these ideas and associations um, with them. A shiny guy filled with longing and desire. Exactly, Karita. Um, so these ideas, these these, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, my goal here is not to force these into like a, a, a simple prosaic account of Arendel here, um, but but these poetic images of Arendel serve for us as a kind of context for 
uh, the Lost Tales stories that we're going to get, right? The, the story of the Lost Tales, as this Arendel figure is integrated into the mythology, where does he go? And what does he do? Well, okay, so let's turn to prose. Because, you know, class is more than half hour, so half over, so I think it's time to definitely start looking at prose. Um, we'll start with this uh, passage that Christopher Tolkien calls the most peculiar, um, and he believes one of the very earliest uh, of all of these fragments. Arendel's boat goes through north. Iceland, added in margin, back of north wind. Greenland and the wild islands. A mighty wind and crest of great wave carry him to hotter climes, to back of west wind. Land of strange men, land of magic, the home of night, the spider. He escapes from the meshes of night with a few comrades, sees a great mountain island and a golden city, added in margin, core. Wind blows him southward, tree men, sun dwellers, spices, fire mountains, red sea. Mediterranean, loses his boat, travels afoot through the wilds of Europe, or Atlantic, home. Waxes aged, has a new boat builded, bids adieu to his north land, sails west again to the lip of the world just as the sun is diving into the sea. He sets sail upon the sky and returns no more to earth. Okay. So uh, this passage, as Christopher Tolkien explains, is so it's like a prose introduction to the bidding of the minstrel. Right, that second poem, the the one about uh, Arendel the Wandering, the dactylic poem. Um, of course, the uh, <laughs> Curita says, "I feel like I'm reading someone's dream diary." Yeah, some of these fragmentary uh, selections from Tolkien do kind of read like that. Um, uh, yeah, good, good. Um, Yana says, is this the only place where we get such explicit references to real-world landmarks? Nope, we also get it in the beginning of The Hobbit. Um, that, not the published Hobbit, but the manuscript of The Hobbit, to the Gobi Desert, uh, and to China? Am I right in remembering that? The Chinese? Doesn't he, isn't he refer to the Chinese? I think he does, when he talks about the East of East. Anyway, um, so yeah, certainly, the real-world real landmarks very... Um, um, very noteworthy, right? Um, this is certainly a good reminder that Middle-earth in its initial conception is our world, right? We'll talk about this more next time, but um, you know, uh, lest we forget this, you know, it, it, a cornerstone of his invention from the very beginning was that he was inventing an imagined mythic history of our world not creating his own fantasy world. That was never what Tolkien was explicitly doing. He's just um, he's just telling a fictional mythic history of our world, and here we get these explicit references. Um, good. More. D- thinking, I, I want to treat this paragraph for now in the same way that we were treating the poems. What do we learn? What do we see? We, we can see a lot of things you know, we, we we can certainly recognize in this figure the figure of those poems, right? Look at the errantry. Right? He's going on all these adventures. 
Right, he he goes goes to the land of strange men, the land of magic, the home of night, the spider. Right, that sounds like a big deal. Um, he escapes from the meshes of night. Wow, and a great mountain and a golden city. Okay, these these are adventures. Right, that's some errantry right there. Uh, notice though, he's not lonely. He's got some comrades. Right, uh, so he's not he's he's not a lonely wanderer, which is interesting. Um, but uh, good, James points out that we see the aging again. Yep, good, and, uh, uh, and Arthur was pointing that out too. Um, yep, and Nancy as well. Good. So we see, so we we can see some what appear to be explicit recollections of the poems, right? Um, the, I know, not surprising since this is actually appended to the poem, right? Uh, to to one of those poems. It's not like it's a remote uh, uh, recollection. Um, but yeah, these adventures are really fascinating. Wouldn't it be cool? Uh, to see Tolkien flesh these out, right? Um, what is, in what sense, the land of magic? What is the home of night? Um, who are the sun dwellers? What were the tree men like? Um, uh, uh, it's it's very it's it's really cool stuff. Um, yeah, Nancy says the list of adventures is almost more mock- more evocative than a potentially fleshed out version. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, good. Don is pointing out that he's on more of a north-south rather than east-west trajectory. He does eventually go west, right? He sails west to the lip of the world, but that's only his last and greatest, you know, adventure, right? Going west to the lip of the world. Before that, yes, he's going north and south. So again, we have the wandering idea, right? This is not a man on a mission, right? I'm headed west no matter what. This is, I'm wandering around here and there, having lots of adventures, and the culminating adventure is off to the west and setting sail upon the sky. So that that transition from super wanderer, seafaring adventurer to now I'm going to go up in the sky is made explicit here in this prose account. Um, Yeah, yeah, good. And of course, again, all those those real-world um, things which, which notice the fact that we get Iceland and Greenland and then the Mediterranean, right? Seem to be, uh, you know, it's hard not to associate those with various mythic ideas, right? We've got Norse mythology and Greek mythology both represented here in the voyages of Arendel. That seems to me non accidental. Um, but um, so anyway, let's push along. I want to. I want to go f- from moving forward from here, so we can see how this sort of this first this prose account, which is again connected with the poem. So we see the the concepts of the poem being sort of articulated, um, at least in in sort of outline form, um, in sort of scattered form. But anyway, in some kind of uh, um, you know narrative structure. Um, but let's really develop this, right? How does this fit into the Book of Lost Tales? Now, later on, not too much later on, right? A couple years later, Tolkien's sitting down, he's writing the Book of Lost Tales, he's bringing all these things together, and he's um, now going to do the tale of Arendel. Remember um, what, how Christopher Tolkien describes this, right? The framework that he, get, that he gives for it. Um, he says there was gonna, the, the tale of Arendel was going to be told in seven parts, right? There's seven tales, one big tale of Arendel. But to do it properly, you've got to do it in seven different sittings, right? So there are going to be seven different tales, seven different stories of Arendel. Um, I'm going to try to basically stick with that. It doesn't all fit because his revisions kind of mess up the sequencing and stuff. Um, but again, as I said, I want to kind of do a conglomerate. So I'm going to follow uh, the different tales. Now remember, tale one 
is the tale of the, Na- the Nauglifring. Unless it's the fall of Gondolin. Anyway, the two stories we've already heard, both of which lead up to uh, the story of Eärendil, right? One is where Eärendil comes from, right, in the fall of Gondolin. The other is where Elwing comes from in the story of the Nauglifring and the downfall of Tinwell and Tenartenor. Um So anyway, we end up with both of them down uh, at the uh, the mouths of Syrian, and that's where Eärendil's story itself begins. So we pick up with that here on Tale 2. Um. Uh, okay. Yeah. Good. Nancy points out that in the in, in the unfinished tales class we talked about a novel length tour story, which seemed to be more or less what Tolkien was embarking on there, um, in his tour story. Um, and uh, Nancy points out that this is in itself basically another novel length work in the making. Yeah. I mean, at least it's a huge section. I mean, if the Book of Lost Tales is meant to be read as a novel, um, uh, you know, I always sort of in 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 that. Uh, it's not novel form, but it's uh, it, it's anyway that scope. Um, the tale of Arendel would be a huge chunk of that, right? Okay, so tale one again, stories that have already been told. Tale two, though, again, which one it is? Little one, queer. The Nagulafring is the one listed in sketch B, in scheme B, I should say. Um, now, tale two. Okay, so we've got Arendel's youth. Right here's this here's this the scheme B the earliest version of this plot outline um, as he's doing the Lost Tales, the dwelling at Syrian, coming thither of Elwing and the love of her and Eärendil as girl and boy, aging of Tuor, his secret sailing after the conks of Olmo in Swanwing, Eärendil sets sail to the north to find Tuor, and if needs be Mandos, sails in Eärame, wrecked. Olmo appears, saves him, bidding him sail to Kor, for this hast thou been brought for this hast thou been brought out of the wreck of Gondolin. Okay. Um but this is a very common thing to see in Tolkien's outlines. When he's doing his outlines, he'll have a bunch of these sort of ideas that he wants to hit on. But then like a particular quotation will kind of float up, right, as he's thinking it through, you know, and so he'll he'll write it out, you know, for this thou ha- for this thou hast been brought out of the rack of Gondolin. Um this this is this is exactly what it almost gonna say to him. Um Okay. So where does Arendel's story start? What do we get what is emphasized? in Eärendil's early stories. Um, yeah, Nancy, the uh, the love of Eärendil and Elwing is clearly a really important element, right? The love of Elwing and Eärendil as girl and boy, right? They grow up together uh, and love one another. Remember that we had this, we had a glimpse of this pattern way back at the very beginning of the Book of Lost Tales, Part 1, in that other very early poem, You and Me in the Cottage of Lost Play, right? That's all about uh, the meeting in the dream world, the fairy world that people can get in in their dreams, the meeting of the young boy and the young girl, which is pretty obviously Tolkien writing this poem for uh, for Edith. Um, uh, so, Eärendil and Elwing bring that concept, which he articulated in this poem, into 
the mythology as well, right? So this idea, so Arendel and Elwing as these kind of predestined lovers, right? The two of them who are lovers from their youth, they are like those two souls who met together uh, down the Alore Male um, uh, by the Cottage of Play um, in their childhood dreams and then meet and uh, and love as if they'd met before, right? I mean, this, that's the idea that's there in the Cottage of Lost Play, and we see so we see this being brought in with Arendel and Elwing. This is a is an imp- clearly an important development. Um, at, so notice that the you know the earliest emphasis in the story of Arendel within the context of the Lost, so, you know, now we're talking about how this Arendel figure that we've been looking at in these kind of abstract terms, or you know, without any other context other than these references and poems, now we're placing within the context of the whole Book of Lost Tales world, right? The whole Lost Tales story. And when he gets put in there, the first thing that we get emphasized is his love with Elwing. Okay. But there's also the relationship between him and his dad, right? The aging of Tuor and his setting sail in secret. Tuor has the sea longing, right? Um, hearing hearing uh, you know, the, the conchs, the conches of Olmo. Um, uh, he, he is drawn to the sea and sails in secret. And so Eärendil sets out to find him. So, okay, good, Ethan. Tuor is aging, right? We get the aging thing right, but now it's Tuor, right? Um, So this question of mortality is there, but notice that by shifting the aging from Eärendil to Tuor, now Eärendil's sailing has a purpose from the very beginning, right? We don't get just a wandering Eärendil. We don't get a, uh, you know, we we don't get a heedless Eärendil. We get an Eärendil on a mission, Right? to seek to find his aging father who left him. What happened to dad? I must find out. So he sets out, if needs be, to Mandos. Right? So, from the beginning, he now has a purpose. Um, His purpose is to find his dad. And that doesn't pan out. He wrecks. um, And Olmo appears and tries to divert him. Right? Sail into the west. So again, notice it's not just like, and now I'm going to go to the west to the lip of the world as the culmination of my adventuresome career, right? As we got in that first prose fragment. Now we have his own desire to go basically north to try to find uh, to try to find Mandos, to try to find his dad, um, but almost saying, "Go west, young man," right? Instead of going north, and of course he is a young man now. Um, uh, Sarah, I have no idea what he was planning to do with Tuor if he found him. I, I, it doesn't say he's trying to break him out. I don't know what he's wanting to do. Just to discover where he is, maybe he's going to try to rescue him? No clue. Um, but his desire for his friend knows his desire isn't for the sea. It's his dad who has the desire for the sea. He has a desire for his dad. And it's that element, uh, uh, Eärendil's relationship with Tuor, which, as we watch in the subsequent schemes and outlines, Tolkien keeps coming back to that and giving us more and more information on that. Let's look at some of those. Um, so this is in outline C. The, 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 the second version of this outline, look at the, the more information we get here. Great love of Eärendil and Tuor. 
two more ages, and almost con- conscious, I think it's con- it should be conscious here, right? Conscious far out west over the sea, call him louder and louder, till one evening he sets sail in his twilight boat with purple sails, swan wing, al Idril sees him too late, her song on the beach of Syrian. When he does not return, grief of Eärendil and Idril. Eärendil, urged also by Idril, who is immortal, desires to set sail and search even to Mandos. Marginal edition, curse of Nauglifring rests on his voyages. Ossa is his enemy. We never know why Ossa is his enemy. But, um... Uh, but anyway, there it is. So we're given some explanation for why he wrecks and what the trouble is. And there's that darn curse of the Nauglifring uh, uh, getting in the way again. But again, notice the central place that both his love for Tuor and his grief over Tuor's departure plays in this, right? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a central element in these early conceptions of Eärendil. Um So, you know... It's enough for me even to say, if we have to sort of characterize Eärendil, um, he is being defined by his love for Elwing, but even more strongly by his love for his father. He is not primarily a guy who has an immortal sea longing, sea yearning. He is in the more painful position of being the son of the guy with this, with the immortal sea longing, um, who is. So he's connected with mortality in the sense that he's almost sort of questioning death. But I'm going to go even to man. I've got to find out what happened. I am not content to lose my father. My father left and never came back. And I'm going to find him, doggone it. I'm going to, I'm going to even at the risk of transgressing, I'm going to seek after him. Um, uh, and, then we, and we've got Israel. Right, Idril's grief, and that little glimpse of that horrible story. Idril sees him too late. Here's Idril comes running out, and there's Tuor's ship sailing away. Right, so the separation of Idril and Tuor, um, which seems to give testimony to the nature and the power of this sea longing. Right, um, as he he's drawn Tuor is drawn even away from his wife. We saw the great love. Remember, that's why he stayed in Gondolin. Lost Tales context now, right? That's why Tuor stayed in Gondolin, because of the love of Idril. He was going to take off and go... So he, he didn't go back to the sea, though he already had the sea lung. He didn't go back because he wanted to stay in Gondolin with Idril. I'll stay in this, you know, depressingly landlocked... And really nice, but depressingly landlocked city um, because Idril's here, right? But in the end, he leaves Idril behind, and we see her there weeping and singing on the beach of Syrian as she watches her husband vanish and then urges her son to go and set sail in search of him. Uh, really, uh, really fascinating emphasis at the beginning, uh, in the beginning portions of this story. Um, in, a, in, a, in an even later outline, again, we get more detail. Again, we can see Tolkien refining this story of the departure of Eärendil's father, right? Tour, the ultimate you know, uh, name of Tour that Tolkien toyed with. Tour groweth sea-hungry. Love that metaphor. His song to Eärendil. One evening he calls Eärendil and they go to the shore. There is a skiff. Tour bids farewell to Eärendil and bids him thrust it off. The skiff fares away into the west. Eärendil hears a great song swelling from the sea as Tour's skiff dips over the world's rim. 
his passion of tears upon the shore, the lament of Idril. This is really cool. Right? Okay, so now notice, once again, we have Tuor, I'm still going to call him Tuor. We have Tuor still being called, right, and leaving his family behind, but no, he's not just sleeping away, slipping away in secret anymore, right? Um, he calls Eärendil with him, right? Son, I've been called and I have to go. So so there's Eärendil accompanying Tuor to the shore to see him off like Sam seeing Frodo off at the end of the Lord of the Rings, right, at the Grey Havens. Um, but now notice, it's, and, he's, and, and the fact that he sings a song, right? His song to Eärendil, right? I shall sing you of my sea hungriness, of my sea hunger, of my sea yearning. Um, and, uh, uh, but but then the boat, right? This is not him setting sail in his awesome ship, right? As if he'd built a ship for the purposes of sailing off, uh, you know. Into, you know, and, and there we can see, I think, a very different quality of the sea hungriness of Tuor here, right? The fact that he had built that, um, you know, that sweet ship, um, you know, Swanwing Alcarame, um, you know, Idril. I don't want to accuse Idril of being a little slow in the uptake, but you know you got to know going out to sea is on his mind if he's like spending all this time building this awesome ship. Sooner or later, probably going to set sail in it, right? Um, even though it doesn't mean he has to leave his wife behind. But anyhow, this is totally different, right? He's not prepared. He just goes, and there's a skiff. And then he gets into the skiff, and off it goes. Um, we see this in fairy poetry. This kind of thing happens in Arthurian... Like if you're on the quest for the Holy Grail and you see a boat, you know what you're supposed to do. You get in the boat and it takes you somewhere, right? Magically. Because that's the kind of adventure that happens when you're on the quest for the Holy Grail. At those Arthurian moments of these magical ships, we get it, um, we get it in other uh, medieval poems as well, seem to be a, a recollection of this sort of elvish magic. If you're being transported, if you're being called uh, to Elfland, a boat is going to be provided. He's not steering this boat. He's not, uh, you know, I don't think we're supposed to imagine, you know, two are rowing off into this. Bye now, I'm, I'm sculling off into the distance, right? Um, that's not how it's happening, right? He gets in the skiff and whoop, off he goes. So it's elvish magic. He's being called. There's some destiny upon Tuor that he sets off here. Um, but despite that, you know, there's not this, like, well, it was Dad's time, right? He was called off into the West by the Eldar, or whatever, whoever it was who sends skiffs to people. Um, yet we see an even greater emphasis on their grief, his passion of tears, the lament of Idril. She's not just singing a song on the beach. We didn't know in the previous outline what kind of song it was, right? We just, it just said her song on the beach of Syrian. Maybe it was a cheerful song. Maybe it was a song of, like, gee, gosh, two are all kind of miss you, but it's awesome that you're living the dream, or whatever. Who knows what her song was? Now it's explicitly a lament, right? Um, and his skiff dips over the world's rim, right? Not, not literally, right? He's probably not plummeting down off the edge of the world, but, you know, dragon-headed doors of night, who knows? Um, uh, but um, anyway, so, so the point is you see how this element develops, and he doesn't, and this is, this is a relatively late one, Right, but it's still it's still all there. So again, the central importance of his grief for Tuor and his desire to follow Tuor, Eärendil's sea longing in these stories has its origin in Tuor's sea longing and is therefore connected with both mortality and with grief. Okay. Um, 
that I think is a, is is one of our take home things that we can set aside and think when we're thinking what is the story of Arendo uh, in in the Book of Lost Tales or what would it have been that I think is uh, is one of those uh, is is one of those central elements. Okay, tale tale three. Um, still seeking Tuar, right? We're not done with Tuar because again, it's hugely important, right? Um, he sets out again. He's wrecked the first time. He's going to go again. This is back to Scheme B, the first of those outlines. The second attempt of Arendel to Mandos. Wreck of Falasquil and rescue by the Oarni. The mermaids. Love the mermaids. Wish we still had the mermaids in the Silmarillion. He sights the Isle of Seabirds. Whither do all the birds of all waters come at whiles? Goes back by land to Syria. Idril has vanished. She sets sail at night. The conches of Olmo call Arendel. Last farewell of Elwing, building of Wingelot. Now it's really hard for me to kind of put together the things in that second paragraph there. That is, I don't, you know, um, the last farewell of Elwing. She says, says farewell to him, and he builds Wingelot. Does this have anything to do with Idril vanishing? I don't know. But now we have him being called. Notice he's been on two voyages without himself hearing the horns of Olmo. Right. Um, uh, but only now does he hear the, 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 the horns of Olmo, and he builds Wingalot, his great and famous ship, um, and says portentously his last farewell to Elwing. Um, uh, and he's rescued by the Oarni, right? The mermaids who were, with whom he used to hang out when he was a kid. Right, they, the 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 mermaids loved him. Right, this is added later on in one of the later versions that at the on the shores of Syria he used to hang out with the mermaids. Right, he's be very popular with the mermaids, and they come and rescue him later on. Um, it's all good. Um, yeah, d- it's hard, Karina. Try not to think of Disney when we're thinking of the mermaids here. Um, uh, they are very benevolent mermaids, it seems in general, um, and. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's cool. I, 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 I would love to see. Uh, and as I said, I wish we hadn't lost the mermaids. Uh, I would have loved to see Tolkien develop mermaids, uh, and uh, and do a little more with those. But okay, so hang on. Let's. So okay, back to our context now. Back to our our, our story as it's developing. So he's still following after Tour. He's not giving up. And now notice he's explicitly going to Mandos. Before it was, I'm going to follow Dad even to Mandos if I have to. I don't care. That's how dedicated I am. I'll go even to. Mandos. The second time he's like. Off to Mandos, right? Let's go to Mandos to find Dad, because he's obviously there. So that's where we're going. Um, and he's wrecked again, um, and he has to come back based on walk back home uh, from the northern strands that he that he is wrecked at. Oh, but by the way, when he's there, where does he end up? What does he do? He finds the house that Tuor built. Remember that cave that Tuor built? Um, you know, where you know, with the sandy floor where he was living by the sea. You remember, he was the first man ever to see the sea, and he was living in that cave for a long time until finally he was like, "Eh, I think I'll go down to the land of willows." You remember that? That house, that cave, is found by Arendel, and he lives there. So, notice the way in which Tuor's career and Arendel's career are kind of being paralleled here. There's this sense that. You know, when he returns to that place, which in the story of Tuor was associated with this time of waiting, right? He goes out to the shore and he's heard, you know, he's, he's, he's attracted to the sea now. Um, 
almost like he's almost found his purpose in life, but he's still he's still not on the mission yet, right? Um, that was the place where Tuor was in his career when he was in that cave. Eärendil goes back to that cave, and after that is when he wanders back home and starts building Wingalot, right? And remember, in these outlines, also we have Olmo appearing to him to say, "Hey, you know, get on the stick. I've got a job for you. You're supposed to go to Kor." Um, okay, okay. Um, yeah, good. Several people are pointing out how unusual it is, uh, how unusually benevolent are these mermaids, and that usually when sailors meet mermaids, they don't have happy endings. Um, yeah, and I think it's really interesting that uh, Tolkien... That's why I wish we got more of them, because Tolkien seems to have developed these really benevolent mermaids, which is interesting, I agree. It's kind of fascinating that he would make that particular choice. Um yeah, Yana, what a marvelous metaphor that is. Yana says it's like Eärendil is on a pilgrimage tracing his father's steps. Yeah, no, but the thing is, remember, he doesn't set out for that, right? He's, he's going to Mandos to find his dad. Um, but, uh, uh, so it's not like he's like, I shall go and I shall find my father's dad, but that's where he ends up, right? Um, after he's been wrecked. It seems to be his destiny, right? That And that seems to be sort of the turning point in his career, where he's no longer following, just pursuing his debt, right? Where he no longer has sort of secondhand sea yearning, right? That's when he begins to follow his own course and to, and that's when he hears the horns of Olmo himself, right? And develops his own sea longing and builds Wingalot. But he also says here his last farewell to Elwing. So, We've got this story about him and his dad, but now to go back to his childhood sweetheart, Elwing, right? Um, and uh, uh, so he said farewell to her with the very ominous implication that this is for the last time. Um, we get in the next outline a greater, you know, a, a, a more emphasis on that. Elwing's grief when she learns almost bidding. For no man may tread the streets of Kor, or look upon the places of the gods, and dwell in the outer lands in peace again. Okay, so, it's not just, and it turns out that this is the last farewell, right? Um, it's not just like something the narrator is dropping on us, like, Arendel says, bye, Elwing, I'll be back really soon, but we know it will never happen, right? It's not like that, right? Elwing knows full well she'll never see him again. Um, at least that's how the story, whether that's what Tolkien was thinking when he wrote that first phrase of the final farewell, that's where his mind goes after this, right? Elwing grieves when she learns Olmo's bidding. So Olmo has given him this message. You've got to go to Kor. Why? I don't know. It doesn't say why. All it says is that for this reason you were spared from the rack of Gondolin, right? Um, you were you were spared, you were brought out of Gondolin, so that you could go to Kor. You've got a job. Okay, apparently he's got a job at Kor. But his trip to Kor is a one-way trip. If he looks upon the places of the gods, if he obeys Olmo and looks upon the places of the gods, he will never dwell in the outer lands in peace again. So, um, we have this now conflict between 
his purpose, his destiny, what Olmo is calling him towards. Um, and so he, first he had to work out his issues about his dad and presumably about his own mortality. Um, the whole, I'm going to seek Mando's thing. Um, but now he seems to be falling in with his purpose and he's building Wingalot and he's going to go. Um, but there's a cost, right? It's a sacrificial journey. He can't come home and it means he's going to be separated, uh, from, um, from Elwing. Now, I agree with you, James, that the phrase in, in peace is interesting. Um, as James points out, he's not explicitly forbidden to come back, right? Um, maybe he could come back, but he'll never come back in peace again. Remember Tuor being dragged off by his sea hungriness, uh, you know, his sea hunger uh, from Idril, leaving Idril lamenting on the shore, right? Bye, Idril. I, I hung out with you for a while in Gondolin, but now I'm out. I'm going to, I'm going to see... Um, is that the kind of not dwelling in peace that uh, Elwing... Well, it doesn't seem... You know, so is is she grieving here just because she's like, well, like, I already saw it happen to my mother-in-law, right? I guess, uh, great. That's what I'm... It's going to happen to me, too. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe we could understand it that way. The final farewell in uh, in sketch uh, B uh, made it... Uh, scheme B made it sound a little bit more permanent than simply he's never going to rest at, you know, his, ne- his heart will never be at peace in the Outer Lands again. Um, but anyway, okay, off off he goes into the West. And then Errantry happens! He has a bunch of adventures, right? So we go back to the Errantry element, which had been wholly absent, right? Remember, we, we, we have had an Arendel who has not been wandering, who has not been uh, involved in any kind of, lo- of Errantry, lonely or otherwise, right? That's not even been, been on the horizon of Arendel's story so far. Uh, he might have had adventures while seeking his dad, but he was not just a wanderer. Um... Well, Tale 4 is the story of his adventures. When he sets out for the West, he has lots of adventures, right? Veronwe and Eärendil set sail in Wingalot, driven south, dark regions, fire mountains, tree men, pygmies, Sarkindi, or cannibal ogres. Whoa, whoa. okay. Driven west, Ungueliante, magic isles, twilight isle, little heart's gong awakes the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. Okay. Love it. Um, yeah. Pygmies, cannibal ogres, magic isles, tree men, there they are again, fire mountains, dark regions. Wow. Oh, again. Goodness. What would these be? Um, no idea. Um, but, um, but these are the adventures that he, so now, 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 no. So this is not just like, hey, I'm going to seek adventures. He's got a mission. He's going to core. This is all stuff that happens on his journey. Notice, driven south, right? I'm headed west, but dang it if I don't end up in the south. Um, this has much more so than in 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 the old version. Um, in the old version, which had many of these same details, there was that sense of like, hey. I'm a wonder. I'm going, and I'm finding. There's lots of cool stuff, lots of scary stuff, but lots of cool stuff, right? Um, that he's finding. This has more of a um, uh, Yana. That's exactly what I was about to say. This sounds a lot more like the Odyssey to me. This sounds much more Homer, right? 
Odysseus had a lot of adventures on the way home, too. But he wasn't seeking adventure. The poor guy is just trying to get back home to Ithaca, right? But one thing after another happens. He gets sucked into one crazy thing after another. And uh, and these are all just obstacles on his path, right? Um, and notice even the parallelism uh, of Poseidon's... Uh, uh, anger against Odysseus, his persecution of Odysseus, uh, and Ossa's apparently inexplicable persecution, at least it never is explained, persecution of Aerendel. Um, uh, yeah, no, it sounds very, it, it sounds, uh, sounds very uh, Odyssey to me. Um, but again, I think that that context is important here. These are, these are side adventures that he has that are that he finds himself enmeshed in, literally, I suppose, in the case of Unguiliante, um, but he, uh, um, but he's he's out, um, but he's still trying to get west. He's still trying to get to core uh, when he has all of these adventures. Um, you'll notice how Unguiliante has been there from the beginning. We remember we had the great spider before, right? So we can see this idea of him going to. Um, uh, the 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 center of night before um, to Anguilliante. So uh, this, from, you know, from these old stories, this was going to be the end of Ungoliant. Um, where does Ungoliant meet her end? Right in the published Silmarillion, he says nobody knows where she ended. Well, in the old stories, we know Arendel kills her. She's one of his main adventures uh, that um, uh, that he has. Um. So, uh, so there we are. Um, uh, yeah, Tom, it is possible that one of the pygmies had only one eye and was the son of Asi. We can't rule that out. Again, another Odyssey reference. Um, okay, so, so again, he, he has the errantry now, but again, even that is, by the fact that he's driven, you know, aside, again, this has been changed, right? He's not just one, he's, he's still not just wandering. Um, more on Little Heart's Gong awaking the sleeper in the in the Tower of Pearl. First of all, I think part of me is just delighted by the concept of Little Heart carrying around a gong. Like I got this gong. One of these days, I'm gonna find a, ma- a, a magic sleeper, you know, in some kind of remarkable tower. And I'm gonna. But if I do, boy, I'm ready. I've got a gong, right? And I'm ready to use this gong. Like, what is the story? What is the story of, of this dude and his gong, right? Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know. But I'm just, I, I find myself sort of delightfully amused uh, by Little Heart and his gong. Because also, you know, you've got this it's to be i i'm i'm very uh very sort of tickled by the combination of the to me comical image of little heart holding a gong around with him just in case you know um but then the as i said marvelously evocative and mythic um uh phrase of the sleeper in the tower of pearl um so it's like oh well that's why i carried a gong around aren't you glad i have a gong now um more on this this is the this is from one of those little fragment uh the, the, the little fragments that Christopher put together. More on the Sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. The Sleeper in the Tower of Pearl, awakened by Little Heart's Gong, a messenger that was dispatched years ago by Turgon and enmeshed in magics. Even now he cannot leave the tower and warns them of the magic. In C there is a statement rejected that the Sleeper in the Tower of Pearl was Idril herself, as I mentioned. Okay, so... Um, 
notice how he's taking the concept of the sleeper in the House of Pearl. Remember that was in the Happy Mariners. That seemed to be about the sleeper in the in the Tower of Pearl, in the House of Pearl. Did I say that in the Tower of Pearl? Sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. Um, he's trying to integrate the sleeper within the the poem. So we've got, oh, remember Turgon sent those mariners who never made it? And some of them got diverted and we never heard from them. Well, apparently one of them has been uh, engaged in a, in, a, in a long nap, right, up in the Tower of Pearl and is going to be awakened uh, by uh, the gong of Little Heart. And that's kind of cool. But even more cool is the fact that it doesn't work. Right? He gets wakened okay, but he still can't leave. Right? He's wakened but not rescued. Even now he cannot leave the tower and warns them of the magic. Ah, really cool. Um, Okay. Okay. Anyway, okay. But moving on. So after we do a bunch of adventuring uh, in Tale 4, he's still trying to get to Kor, right? So here's Arendel beating about the world, trying to find his way to Kor, which is, you know, easier easier said than done. Meanwhile, in Kor, coming of the birds of Gondolin to Kor with tidings is Tale 5. Uproar of the Elves. Councils of the Gods, March of the Inwir, Death of Inwe, Teleri, and Solosimpi, Raid upon Tyrion and Captivity of Elwing, Sorrow and Wrath of Gods, and a veil dropped between Valmar and Kor, for the gods will not destroy it, but cannot bear to look upon it. Coming of the Eldar, Binding of Melko, Faring to Lonely Isle, Curse of the Nauglifring, and Death of Elwing. Wow, okay. So, the birds that lived in Gondolin fly off to Kor. They've, they've taken a while, because it's a longish trip. And they get there, and they tell the other elves that are in Kor. Remember, Kor is by uh, Tenequitil, right? This is not the Lonely Island. They're in Kor, the city which will later be called Tyrion, um, over there on the shores of Ferry. And, uh, but they've got news of the fall of Gondolin, so... Oh my goodness, Melko has just about destroyed every, you know, all of the Eldar and the Noldoli back in the Great Lands. We're not going to put up with it anymore. We're going to march out and we're going to rescue the elves and take care of Melko for good and all. And we have, at the same time, there's a raid upon Syrian and the captivity of Elwing. So Elwing is taken prisoner by Melko. Not explicitly said in this version, but uh, uh, he he develops that later on. Okay, so Melkor's gonna Melko is gonna come down and is gonna sack the uh, the their their you know the the places of, by the beach where she and Arendel were kids together and take Elwing captive. But the elder they're they're not gonna take it. The Inwir, the Teleri, and the Solosimpi they're out. They're marching back to the Great Lands, but they're going against orders. Right, they're marching out against the, and the gods, the Valar, are ticked off, so ticked off that they contemplate destroying Kor. Right, they're going to level the place because they're so mad at the elves for going back to the Great Lands. They're not supposed to do this, but in the end, they 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 won't destroy it, but they can't bear to even look at Kor anymore. So they drop a veil in between. Right, they seal off Kor from Valmar. Forget about it. You guys are all out. I can't help but think that Turgon really was wise to reject the Council of Olmo, right? Remember when Olmo's like, hey, you know what? 
go fight Melko. The Valar totally have your back. And remember, Turgot is like, yeah, right, yeah, I'm sure the Valar have my back. Well, who's laughing now, Olmo, right? I guess the Valar don't have his back at all, as they seem to be completely ticked off that the elves are going back to fight at all. Now, maybe it's because they were planning to do it a different way, and that we don't really know exactly all of the reasons why the gods are sorrowful and wrathful. Sorrowful, presumably, because the elves are putting themselves in danger or something that they're afraid they might lose them all. But, uh, but it doesn't explain exactly why they're so wrathful as they are. But in any case, you know what? The elves don't need any stinking Valar. They're going to take care of business themselves, and they do. They come, they come back, and they bind Melko by themselves, right? Take that Valar. We're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take this guy down on our own. But then they come back, and they come back to the lonely isle. They can't go back to Kor. They go back to the lonely isle. So the lonely isle is their place of exile. So they 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 come back out of the great lands. And the Lonely Isle is their place of exile. It's as close as they can get back to Kor, but they're not permitted to go all the way back. Um, okay, okay. Um, and uh, um, Elwing dies. Not in captivity, sadly. Tragically, she's rescued, apparently, from captive the captivity of Melko by the Eldar. Isn't that great? But as they're sailing back to the Lonely Isle, in the fairing to the Lonely Isle, she dies. She's wrecked. Because of the darn curse of the Naglifring. It's that it's that meme, still the curse of meme. Uh, it's that like they can they can overcome Melko himself, but boy that dwarf curse is just a killer. Right? They can't get they can't get rid of that thing, and it still takes out Elwing. And so we find that the Importance of the final farewell between Elwing and Eärendil is even sort of more. It turns out to be fulfilled, and it's not just that he's not going to be able to come back at all, or either not able to come back and have peace. She's not going to be there when he comes back because she herself is going to be lost. Now, moving ahead to outline B. Um, more on the binding of Melko and what happens when the Eldar come back and how then and Elwing's death. Um, okay, of the binding of Melko, the wars with men and the departure to Tol Arisea, the Eldar unable to endure the strife of the world. Now we get a reason for why the Eldar leave. To, you know, why, why don't they just stay in the Outer Lands, right? I mean, they bound Melko after all, right? It's it's lovely there. I hear the 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 land of the of the willows, uh, Treebeard says it's awesome there. Why not stay? Well, apparently because they can't endure the strife of the world, and they have wars with men afterwards. Is another reference to that elsewhere? Eärendil sails to Tol Arisea and learns of the sinking of Elwing and the Nauglifrings. So now we hear we hear of the mode of her death, right? Ah, wait, but wait, we have a change. Between scheme B and outline C, he's rethought he's rethinking that. Now he doesn't want Elwing to die. Right, okay. But the tragic separation with Elwing is gonna stay. So Elwing becomes a seabird. His grief is very great. I mean he she Elwing sank, right? Um, and became a seabird, but like, what does that mean? Like, so she's, she's again. Even the the becoming of a seabird by Elwing, um, this also has a very sort of Mediterranean feel to me, right? Uh, you know, now we're not in, we're not in Homer anymore. Now we're in Ovid, right? We're in the Metamorphoses now. So, you know, I'm gonna, you know, the the, the I. 
and plunged into the sea but turned into a seabird um, uh, is beginning to sound like the, sto- the story of, of, uh, uh, of Seix and Alcyone uh, from, the, from the Metamorphoses, the tragic separation, and he's wrecked at sea, and then the, the two of them end up becoming seabirds, both of them at the end. Um, so, uh, okay, so, what, so we still have a tragic separation, right? Notice, her becoming a seabird, this is not like a mode of transportation for her to return to him, right? This is still a separation. He thinks she's gone. She's lost. Right? His grief is very great. His garments and body shine like diamonds, and his face in silver flame for the grief and... something else. We don't know. Right? It's a manuscript. Can't read that bit. Um, and if you've ever seen Tolkien's handwriting, you will be amazed that Christopher Tolkien has been able to make out as much as he has. Um, uh, but anyway, okay. Um, his face in silver flame. Doesn't that sound familiar? Right? Sounds kind of like, in fact, exactly like. I mean, zoop, zoop, zoop. There we go. With his heart afire, with bright desire, and his face in silver flame. Well, we still are remembering that, right? But, back, 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 okay. But now, it's grief, not desire, right? Totally different context. So, he's not just the kind of epitome of sea longing, this wandering errantry. No, he's been sent on this burdensome journey, which has, in the end, just led him into sorrow. And the loss of his wife... Um, and it's his grief that apparently leads his face to shine. The diamond dust is there too, um, but it's associated with the grief there seems to make him shine in some sense. Now, tale six, we get his anticlimactic arrival at Kor, right? So, meanwhile, he finally gets to Kor. Long journey. Man, he's taken this really circuitous path you know, he had to fight Ungoliant and any number of pygmies and tree men, um, but finally he makes it to Kor and finds it empty. Because the elves have already gone back to rescue Middle-earth and bind Melko, right? Now remember, we still don't know what he was supposed to do. Why is he being sent to Kor? We don't know. Omo just said, go to Kor, right? For this you've been saved from the Rack of Gondolin. Okay, so he goes to Kor and he's like, the heck, nobody here to talk to Right? Um, uh, he sights Tol Arisea and the fleet of the elves, but a great wind and darkness carries him away, and he misses his way and has a voyage eastward. By the way, the sequence of, like, does he go... Like, when does he find out about Elwing, and where does that fit, like, in the, in the sequence? Because the Tale 5 material seems to be, like, the whole, the whole story... Of the f- the 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 marching forth of the elves to the great lands to to overthrow Melko. So they, they they fare forth and then they have troubles and they come back and Elwing comes with them because they rescued her and then she sinks and becomes a seagull. So that that element is is there, but um, the the 
Tale 5 and Tale 6 don't seem, even in any of the schemes, to be sort of strictly sequential in chronology. It's like, meanwhile, back to Eärendil, um, who, uh, while the elves are off in the Great Lands doing what we just told you about in Tale 5, he arrives at Kor uh, and finds the place empty. Um, isn't it tragic, Nancy? Isn't this sad? Here he's fulfilling his destiny, and his destiny is literally empty. Core is his destiny, and it's empty. Um, the elves have left it, and they can... It's not just that they happen to be away. They can never return. He comes and he finds only the remnant, the empty shell of the city in which the Eldar once lived. And that's it. And he gets the diamond dust and stuff. But anyway, he comes back to the Great Lands and finds... Syrian empty, and he goes to the ruins of Gondolin. Hears of tidings, sails to Tall Erisea, sails to the Isle of Seabirds. So the, the Eärendil sequence, he has his adventures, goes to Kor, nobody there, goes back home, nobody there either, place sacked, goes back, I mean, finds the ruins of Gondolin, um, ends up sailing back to Tall Erisea, finding then that his wife is going you know, pr- presumably heard I guess pro- why did he go to Gondolin probably heard that Elwing was taken right he heard about uh, what is called in one of the outlines the rape of Elwing which just means her kidnapping um, uh, Tolkien uses the word rape um, a, a few times in its older English sense which just means kidnapping um, so she, she was taken away the raptus of Elwing um is not necessarily a sexual word. Um, so anyway, so so Elwing has been has been has been taken away. So he's finding her. He's looking for her, right? So he goes to uh, he goes to to the ruins of Gondolin. Ends up going to to, to Angamandi. But again, poor Eärendil. The whole like bulk of the story, he's like, you know, a day late and a dollar short. This poor guy, right? He's always showing up places after all the action has happened. I mean, not with Ungoliant, I guess, but with the rest of them, right? Kor, nobody there. Um, he just He's just kicking around and rooting among the ruins of places until he finally gets back to Tol Erisea to find, oops, your wife died a little while ago on her way here. Oh, the horrible tragedy. Like, if you had come sooner in your magic ship um, and she had been with you, maybe she wouldn't have, like, drowned and stuff. Or maybe you would have drowned, too, because of the curse of the Naglafring and Meme is more powerful than everybody else. Um, good, James says, does all this explain why he's wandering? Yeah, isn't it? it? Now, if you certainly, if you draw a map of his voyages, he certainly is a great mariner, and he certainly is doing a lot of wandering. It's almost worse than, I mean, like, the wandering on lonely errantry when he didn't seem to have any purpose um, was one thing. This wandering when he does have a purpose, which is always eluding him, and which he never seems to fulfill, and he never finds any satisfaction, is really kind of horrible. Um, And he goes to the island of the seabirds, apparently in desperation, uh, looking for his wife, because he heard that she turned into a seabird, so he goes there. We get more on this um, uh, in the next outline. He sets sail with Veronway and dwells on the Isle of the Seabirds in the northern waters, not far from Thalasquil, where his father's house is. He, um, he, he, so he stays there, he lives there on the Isle of the Seabirds, hoping that, because remember all the birds of the sea fare there at whiles, right? So every once in a while, every bird, you know, sooner or later every bird in the earth comes by there, so he just camps there, 
hoping that someday one of those birds that comes in is going to be his lost wife, right? Um, there he hopes that Elwing will, will return among the seabirds. Oh, but it gets worse. But she is seeking him, wailing along all the shores and especially among wreckage. So here she is flying around searching for him, afraid that he has been lost. Doesn't realize she, he's actually waiting for her back at the Isle of Seagulls. Isn't that awful? Notice the reversal of roles here too, right? She was left behind and he's like, I've got to go off and journey and, and search, right? And she's like, here I am hanging out at home. And now he's hanging out at the Isle of the Seabirds being like, honey, anytime now, uh, you know, please come. And she's traveling around and searching, right? Except this time for him. Awful. Boy, this story of Elwing and Arendel is so sad. After three times seven years, 21 years, he's lived on the Isle of the Seabirds. He sails again for the halls of Mandos with Veronwe. He gets there because only, not sure of that word, those who still something or other and had suffered may do so. Tuor is gone to Valinor, and naught is known of Idril or of Elwing. Arendel, who started his career with voyages to go to Mandos to seek his dad, right? And seem to kind of find peace with that and to accept his purpose instead to go to Kor, and faithfully did so, only it didn't accomplish anything or seem to have any goal other than ending in tragedy for him, and now he's like, forget it, okay, my, I haven't found my wife among the seagulls, I'm going to Mendos to search for her there. I, you know, I didn't find dad, and like, okay, I can be at peace with my dad dying, whatever, but Elwing... I'm gone, and I'm going to find her there. Um, though notice, when he gets her, he still apparently asks uh, after his dad. Right? His dad's not there, though. Um, uh, he seems to get there. Right? He gets there. We, it says explicitly there in outline C. Um, but he's not uni- reunited with Elwing because she's flying around searching for him. Well, okay, this is depressing. Tale 7, off we go. Arendel the Wanderer. Whoa, look at that. So now, this is the preface to the Shores of Fairy, right? Arendel the Wanderer, who beat about the oceans of the world in his white ship Wingelot, sat long while in his old age upon the Isle of Seabirds in the northern waters, ere he set forth upon a last voyage. Okay. He passed Tiniquitil, and even Valinor, and drew his bark over the bar at the margin of the world, and launched it on the oceans of the firmament. Of his ventures there, no man has told, save that hunted by the orbit moon, he fled back to Valinor, and mounting the towers of Kor upon the rocks of Eglamar, he gazed back upon the oceans of the world. To Eglamar he comes ever at Plenilun, when the moon sails a harrying beyond Teniquitil and Valinor. So this is the preface to the Shores of Fairy. Remember, the Shores of Fairy is the In Valinor poem, right? It's the one where he's the lone star and the moon is hunting him, right? That's why he goes at Plenilune, which, as you can figure out from the roots of the word, means at the time of the full moon. Um, apparently, when the moon is full, it's, like, busy, so he doesn't he, he, he can hang out. Um, so, like, when the full moon comes, he can take it some time off because the moon isn't hunting him anymore, uh, and he can uh, uh, he can come back to Eglamar, which is the same thing as Eldamar, uh, and uh, and uh, chill a little bit um, in the towers of Kor. Um, 
So, notice no reference to Elwing or his grief here. Um, we were talking about how Arendel the Mariner and the Seafarer and Arendel the Star, right? The lonely, doing the lonely errantry up in the up in the heavens, um, were being combined in these poems. Um, especially in the Happy Mariner poem, where we see the actual transition. Um, so here in this prose bit that's been attached to the shores of fairy, um, we see... Notice the element here that's being emphasized of, Ar- of Arendel. <clears throat> he's been a wanderer. He's beaten about the oceans. He's had these long adventures. He sat for a long time while in his age, while in his old age upon the Isle of the Seabirds, right? But then he sets forth upon a last voyage. Now this is the voyage of his mortality. We have the parallel to Tuor's final voyage outright. He goes forth on his last voyage, and he passes Teniquitil, and even Valinor, and drew his bark over the bar at the margin of the world. Right? So he crosses the boundary and um, and uh, travels up into the, fir- into the oceans of the firmament. Has ventures there, right, that no one is told. Um, except, you know, for the fact that, uh, you know, the moon was after him, though we're not told why. Um, so here we have Arendel crossing the final frontier, going into... <laughs> I'm not just trying to make a Star Trek reference. Um, but, uh, you know, we have the, 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 this is the ultimate wandering, right, the ultimate adventure, um, in his old age, seems to be connected with his own mortality as the beginning of his story seemed to be connected with his mortality as well. But, of course, in the other outlines, we get the connections explicitly to Elwing. Um, Reaches bar at margin of the world and sets sail on oceans of the firmament in order to gaze over the earth. Now, notice, we had him gazing over the earth before, right? Um, If you go back to the last one for a second. Um, uh, uh, oh yeah, we have him gazing back upon the oceans of the world, right? Now we're not, there's no suggestion of a, a reason for him to do that. In a sense, it seems to be a kind of, uh, I don't know, consolidation, encapsulation, these are terrible words, of his sea longing, right? That is, not only is like the ocean of the firmament the ultimate ocean, right? But from there he can see, sort of visually embrace all of the oceans of the world, right? Um, those that I mean, anyway, that's what that's what those that passage makes me think of there. But we don't see any other clear reason for it. Here we do get a reason, right? Why, why is he gazing over the earth? The moon mariner chases him for his brightness and dives through the door of night. How he cannot now return to the world, or he will die. He will find Elwing at the faring forth. So this is in this is outline C. This is right after the the passage. It's it's outline C that describes like him waiting for her and her searching for him, um, and then so he, his trip up into the firmament seems to be his last-ditch effort, his desperation effort. I am willing to transgress even the the boundaries of mortality. He's gone to Mandos already, but that's not enough, right? I I shall pursue, I shall go even further to try to find Elwing. I will sail into the firmament itself so that from there I can gaze over the whole earth and find her. Waiting around on the Isle of the Birds isn't working. 
I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to go into the sky. But tragically, his crossing that boundary into the sky means he can never return or he will die. Will he be enabled to look down and see her from there? Maybe, but it's not going to work out. Right now, having done that, he is permanently separated from her. No, wait, not permanently. Just for a really, really long time. At the fairing fourth, later on, he will find Elwing, though we're not told why or how or the circumstances of that. Um, okay, so... In conclusion, that's the story of Arendel. <laughs> so where are we at the end? I've kept you forever here tonight. What's the essence of this story? Um, wandering and seafaring and sea longing, yeah, those are involved, but it's not the center, it's not the heart of this story as we get it, right? It seems to be, there's a lot about mortality, right? The calling of Tuor, the son seeking after his father who has gone, the lamentations for his departure, even when it was recognized that it's his time to go, it's really hard not to read all that skiff business and stuff as, as symbolic, right? of Tuor's death. Um, but anyway, he sort of seems to find peace with that and, and accepts his own purpose, but but why? Again, this is where, you know, go back and uh, let me just like go way back here to the very beginning. Um, going back to Christopher Tolkien's um, synopsis there at the start, um, it seems so insufficient just to say it's a remarkable fact that there's no hint of the idea that it was Eärendil who, by his intercession, brought aid out of the West. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely true. I'm not, not, of course, disagreeing with that statement at all. But that doesn't even really seem to convey it, right? Um, not only is he not pivotal in the plot of the story, his mission is actively thwarted, right? It's not just that he's not been given this role yet. It's that he is given some role, but seems to fail to achieve it. Right? Exactly. As James says, it's, it's a totally different story. It's not even about that. No, not, not at all. Um, uh, um, there's no suggestion that the Valar howled his ship and set him in the sky. Absolutely not. In fact, he seems to be transgressing. Right, he seems to have just as the Eldar, nobody seems to pay the Valar any heed whatsoever. Right, just as the Eldar have marched off and said, "Forget about you, Valar, we're out of here." Right, um, so Arendel's like, "Okay, fine, I'm going to go past Tenequitil and past Valinor, and I'm going to go up into the sky. If, if that's what I've got to do, it's what I've got to do because I got to find Elway." Right, and, and then they're like, "Oh, P.S. You can't come back." Right, um, that's the consequence of this. What seems to be a transgression. Right. So, so yeah, not only do they not hallow it, it's like the opposite of that. Um, and, of course, the Silmaril is completely irrelevant to the story. It's an utter non-factor. It ends up at the bottom of the ocean, presumably, with the Naglafring, and the only, re- the only connection with the Silmaril... You know, the, the Silmaril's only role here is being part of that stupid cursed necklace, uh, which continues to be a pain in everybody's neck. Um, there, there we go. There's the story of Arendel. At the beginning, I said that there seems to be a reason 
Why this tale's unfinished. He had plenty of opportunity to write this story if he wanted to, even the big seven-fold version of it. Um, w- reading these synopses, reading these outlines, reading his, tr- his projections for where this story was going to go, it doesn't surprise me that he's like, he trails off here. And instead of finishing this, he's like, eh, well, eh, I'm going to write an alliterative version of Turin Turambar instead. Right? Actually, that's what I want to do. Forget Aaron, though, I'm going back to Turin Turambar because that's less depressing. Right? Um, <laughs> this appears to be, uh, this ap- appears to be uh, what actually happened in a sense. Now, of course, why the Lost Tales break off, I'm not necessarily suggesting that because he couldn't bear to write the story of Arundel, that's why he didn't finish the Book of Lost Tales. That, I think, is an oversimplification. And next time we will look at what happens at the end of the Book of Lost Tales and where this story ends up and how this sort of ends up changing. Um, so there's a great deal more to it than that. But again, he had the opportunity to write the story of Arundel, and he really kind of almost never wrote. It took a long time for him to write even a short version of the story of Arundel. Um, and many of the elements from, yeah, many of the, the, the details are here. I mean, but like even again, going, looking at this passage, right? Looking at, I talked about the differences. Go back and look at the Silmarillion, the, the similarities here too, to the, Sil- to the Silmarillion. Nonetheless, there were already present the coming of Arundel to Kor, yeah, and finding it deserted, yeah, that's kind of similar, but totally different, right? The dust of diamonds on his shoes, okay, I'll, I'll grant it to you, though in the original version, that's where his shininess came from, and in the later version, it's just a, a fun detail, right? Um, it's just like mood description settings. The changing of Elwing into a seabird, yes, she does change into a seabird in both stories, but it's like exactly the opposite of each other again, right? She, yes, she changes into a seabird, um, but she, in the published Silmarillion, she changes into a seabird in order to be reunited with him, rather than being kept permanently apart from him. That's a small difference. The passing of his ship through the door of night, and the sanction against his return to the lands east of the sea. Um, yes, though, again, the context there, right? Um, anyhow, anyhow. Um, I, uh, I, I will I will I will let you guys go. Um, I hope that this helped you to kind of sort out all of the different details that we get here. Um, uh, I hope that my 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 efforts have helped us to form a little bit of a clearer picture of what Arundel seemed to mean, and the the really sort of complicated mythic and sort of emotional place that this story seems to have, um, and the, you know the role that it seems to have. So anyway. Uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, for your patience with me uh, in this. I think what may be the longest class of the of the whole session here so far. Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, so I appreciate your patience. Next time, so we're dividing the last chapter up into two. We're going to spend two weeks on the last chapter. Um, the next week, we're going to be focusing on the end of the Ariel story. So the last chapter is basically in two parts. The first part is Christopher Tolkien talking about where Tolkien seemed to be planning to go, how he was seemed to be planning to finish the story that he's been developing. Then he goes and describes how Tolkien decided he was going to totally change the entire story. Right? 
we will talk about that the week after next. Next week we will talk about how these stories, the aerial stories, were planning to be ended. Then we'll talk about what he was rethinking with Alfwina and why and what that means. Okay? Excellent. Thank you very much, everybody, and I will see you next week. Good night at last. Bye now.